So finally, they go, and here they come from Teen Wolf. And the room exploded. People went nuts. They had this weird, fancy coffee maker that would make all cappuccinos and all these things. And I just stood there like this, and Tyler Posey goes, it's really complicated. I'll do it for you. And I said, you know, I wrote a book about you. And I said, I wrote a Teen Wolf novel. And he said, oh, really? You and I thought, I, I'm trying not to fangirl you, but he's so handsome. Just being able to find so much joy in Teen Wolf. Welcome to Return to Beacon Hills, a Teen Wolf Rewatch podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kate Colvin, and I'm joined by... Calissa Mullis. And Will Wallace. Every week, we'll be watching and talking about the hit MTV series one episode at a time. But this week, we're talking about On Fire, the only official Teen Wolf novel in existence. This week's episode won't have an alpha section because we talk about many spoiler-filled topics throughout the episode and in our interview with Nancy Holder. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon at RTBH Podcast. There, our Wolfie patrons will gain access to awesome exclusives like early access to episodes, Full Moon AMAs, The Beacon Hills Movie Club, where we watch and provide commentary for movies starring the amazing cast of Teen Wolf and featuring the work of our talented crew, as well as guest video interviews and a monthly watch party. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash RTBH podcast and join the pack. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at return to Beacon Hills at gmail.com. Before we get started, we have a howl out for our newest alpha patrons, Emini, Julia Rushka Crew, Anna Darling, and Ariana Ostgard. Thank you guys for being our alpha patrons and helping to support the show. In Beacon Hills, a mountain lion is blamed for a string of vicious attacks. Scott McCall wishes the cause was that simple. Unfortunately, hiding his werewolf identity, especially from his new girlfriend, Allison Argent, while fighting his need to shift is only one problem. Keeping his mysterious murderous alpha off his back, avoiding hunters, deciphering strange dreams about flames and impending doom is all really eating into his lacrosse practice and hangout time. So when Jackson Whitmore doesn't show up for his date with Lydia, Scott hopes that helping Allison track down their buddy will be simpler. Derek, whose hunger for vengeance blinds him to the dangers that lie in wait, and Styles are also looking, but the worried teen's search is leading right to the preserve from Scott's nightmare. They aren't the only ones in the woods, and their little trip starts looking less like a rescue mission and more like an elaborate trap, one that will force them to make the choice between killing and being killed. Although the time period is not fully established, On Fire builds off of the events of Season 1, Episode 5, The Tell. After Jackson goes missing, Lydia enlists Scott and Allison to help find him. Tracking his phone, Lydia sees that Jackson was last at a seedy motel on the bad side of Beacon Hills. Allison has to lie to her parents after getting busted by them for skipping school because she is grounded and not meant to be seeing Scott. But Scott insists that he won't let Allison go searching for Jackson on her own. Concern for Jackson isn't at the front of Scott's mind, and he instead focuses on the opportunity to spend more time with Allison. Jackson is gone by the time they get to the motel, but after a man has a heart attack, they worry that the Alpha had been there. This leads to Styles and Derek teaming up, we love to see it, to find out what exactly the man saw before they head to the preserve. They don't think the man saw Susie in the shoeshine shop. Jackson's phone now shows him at the preserve, and Allison and Scott are already there, but they find themselves getting distracted by each other and their newfound romance. They can't keep their paws off each other. One of them, no. literally. <laughs> that is very werewolf racist, and you should feel bad. <laughs> Send Derek Hale to spank me. 
Wow. All right. Wow. This episode, Calissa needs to keep it in her pants. But it turns out that Jackson had been led to the motel and then out to the woods by a man, Hunter Graham, claiming to have information about Jackson's birth parents. Jackson gets a bad feeling and flees the meeting. He gets lost in the woods, but a strange woman guides him out, only for him to be attacked by Hunter Graham and other men. It was all a setup to rob Jackson, and the woman was in on it. After Jackson finally contacts Lydia to tell her that he's coming home, Lydia goes to Jackson's house with Danny and his boyfriend Damon, but when she hears a car in the garage, she's jumped by the robbers. With quick thinking, she works out a plan that allows Danny and Damon to help her escape after the boys attack the criminals with some lacrosse balls. Jackson also manages to break free of the criminals after the woman is accidentally shot by Graham. A raging fire breaks out in the preserve and Scott becomes trapped by mountain ash after getting Allison to safety. Derek helps rescue Scott who had lost control and wolfed out. Throughout the course of the book, Derek's backstory with Kate Argent begins to unfold. When he was 16, Kate seduced Derek while she was working as a lifeguard at the high school pool. Derek thought it was true love and hoped that his alpha would be able to give her the bite, but he had no idea that Kate was really using him to discover whether his family was really a pack of werewolves. After setting fire to the Hale house, Kate leaves a ring Derek gave her in the ashes so that he would know that it was her. The novel ends with Kate smirking at Derek as Allison rushes to check on Scott once they are all safe from the fire. What a novel it was. <laughs> <laughs> a novel approach. Oh, hey. nice. So we've read the book. Now, would we recommend it to other people? Yes. I feel like On Fire is a must read for any Derek fan. Styles and Derek spend pretty much all of their scenes together outside of the flashbacks that talk about Derek whenever he's 16. And even that. Yeah. <laughs> There's still some styles up in there, baby styles, but yeah, most of the scenes have Derek with Kate. Right. Or Laura. Nice. Kate? I agree. It's absolutely a must read for every Steric fan. I also think if Derek is a character that you really like in the show, it's definitely a must read because we don't get a lot of Derek's perspective in the show and a good portion of the book is from his perspective. So that's definitely adding to what we get in the show. And there's a lot of Derek's perspective when he's 16 as well, uh, before the fire. So that gives us a lot more information about what he was like before this huge ground-shaking, life-changing event. Got so I, I definitely recommend it if that character is one that you feel things for. Nice, nice. I feel all the things about Derek Hale. Yeah, all, same. So many things. I agree for the most part with that. I would recommend this book to people who are diehard Derek fans or diehard Derek fans, because um, we get some great backstory, as uh, both Kate and Calissa said on Derek, but otherwise, um, you know, unless you're just some Teen Wolf completist, completionist, or whatever, if you have to consume all things Teen Wolf, I would say give it a pass, just because it's very well written, but the story leaves a lot to be desired, in my opinion. You know what, just, just give the show a rewatch on Hulu or Amazon so I can get more residuals, please and thank you. Well, I think you're just flat out wrong, Will, but okay. why don't you tell me more about why you feel that way? Okay. Get more into like what you feel like was lacking in the story. None of this is Nancy Holder's fault. I think the book is very well written. I think it's wonderfully paced. I think it's very exciting. It has a lot of great moments in it. I love the building of the forest fire as all the stories kind of converge in one flaming place. You know, I like all that, but there's no character growth. 
there's there is no real story growth you know like we don't really get anything about jackson's parents at the end of the day because it was all a con and allison and scott's relationship like nothing changes it's just them making out in the woods and then the woods are on fire okay scott well, turns into wolf i think you just don't understand what tie-in novels are well i i i'm getting i'm getting to that i um but i understand that none of that could have happened in this book because it's a tie-in novel you know, again, I thought Nancy Holder did a fantastic job writing it and I enjoyed reading it, but I miss there being like forward momentum in the story or people's emotional arcs. But I understand that can't happen in this book. Had I read this book when it was originally published, I think I would have loved it because it would have come out right after season one and I would have been craving more Teen Wolf in my life. But I read it I just read it 10 years, I think, too late. But again, none of this is Nancy Holder's fault. She's a fantastic writer and a wonderful person. I, I don't think the fact that we don't learn more about Jackson's biological parents makes that storyline any less important for him. I feel like the con artists might as well have said, Jackson, your birth parents' biological surname was MacGuffin. Oh, no, no, yeah. You were born yeah. Jackson McGuffin. And, <laughs> and so, because ultimately the, the point is, and this is something that we see built on in season two, which this came out before season two. So I think it actually tees up the second season pretty nicely, mm-hmm. is that that's not the core of the issue, right? Jackson could find out anything about his biological parents, but that wouldn't address his own need for identity, for forging his own identity. I mean, his family loves him and mm-hmm. supports him. Yeah. And it's not enough for him because, because he hasn't formulated his own identity. And he's hinging that on a biological family that he has never known and possibly will never know. And that's that's not healthy from an emotional perspective. It's completely understandable. Mm-hmm. But What he wants is to find out more about his family. What he needs is to understand that that's not going to be a cure-all for these identity issues that he's experiencing. Nothing that he could find out about his birth family is going to solve that. He's going to need to become his own person regardless. And I think that fits into the trajectory of Teen Wolf as a show. It's about becoming more yourself. It's about forging your own identity, not just in spite of what happens to you, but through what happens to you and not hinging your own self-actualization on any one thing, whether that's the identity of your biological parents or not. So to me, the fact that we never actually learn anything more about Jackson's biological parents is irrelevant. The fact is he's looking for it and he's so desperate for it that he puts himself in danger. And to some degree, he knows that. And we, we see that happen in the show, too. You know, when when Jackson is really pushing on this issue with Scott, he mm-hmm. might not know the whole time what that issue is really about, but he knows that he's probably getting involved in something dangerous. I mean, best case scenario, it's drugs. And everybody knows that getting involved in drugs is perfectly safe, and you're probably <laughs> going to live a long and healthy life, right? Uh-huh. that's part of his story is that he's so desperate for this thing that he puts himself in danger. And that is the core of what Jackson's arc is and where his character exists in season one and then into season two. I I don't think from an emotional perspective, it would have mattered if he learned who his birth family was. Right. I articulated my point very poorly. Let me try that again. I didn't feel like anything came of that story for Jackson 
Scott's character. Like, I mean, he doesn't have any kind of emotional epiphany about any of those things or anything. It's just like it ends and he goes home after that girl dies. Like, that's the end of the story. There's no, he doesn't come out of this story a different person because he can't. So that's that's just my my problem with it. You're right. His 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 who his parents are is meaningless. I don't care who his parents are. You know, like that's not inter- that's not important. Nobody can change in this story because it's a tie-in novel. See, what I like when it comes to Jackson's storyline in the book is actually the fact that we really get that Jackson is a coward when it comes to the ending. He has the opportunity to try to save the girl as she's dying. And he chooses not to mm-hmm. because it puts himself at risk. And that's completely opposite from what we'd see with Scott, unless it was Derek Hale, <laughs> would always rescue, uh, would always you know, put himself at risk to save someone. And I feel like that shows why Scott is obviously turns into a true alpha, whereas Jackson turns into a lizard guy. <laughs> yep. I feel like Nancy Holder really captured the characters even and I thought I was really impressed that she only had the one season that she was able to watch and was able to really get a feel for the characters. I mean, she did amazing job with Lydia's intelligence, Jackson's cowardice and Styles's bravery. Even I feel like we get the one scene where he's willing to like stand up to Derek to save Scott even though he is supposedly allegedly afraid of Derek. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. I don't think he's scared of Derek. I think he's intimidated by Derek. I don't necessarily think those are the same thing. But he's willing to stand up to uh, Derek as Derek's threatening him not to call the cops and he does it anyway. Right. I love the decision tree that Nancy puts in there. Yeah. Really was a very unique detail I hadn't seen in another book, but I feel like it did a fantastic job like portraying Lydia's thought process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And it really fit with her character. Like, and so much of season when we don't get any of that, like we know she's intelligent, but we don't get really much insight into that because- Because she hides so much of it. She hides so much of it. And honestly, she's still very much, I feel like a supporting character in season one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then becomes more of an actual main player in season two. Yep. So, and and onward. And onward, obviously. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that the decision tree, that's all about strategic thinking. And and we actually mm-hmm. have discussed on this podcast before that Lydia excels at strategic thinking. She doesn't necessarily apply it in the most constructive or ethical ways early on in the show. That's something more that comes later. But we absolutely see. When we look at Lydia's face, even in season one, you can see the gears turning behind her eyes. She's right. She's doing the political calculus in her head as we look on. And every decision, nor nearly every decision she makes is coming from strategic thinking. She's going, what is going to get me closest to what I want? Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, who is going to get me closest to what I want? Is it going to be Jackson? Is it going to be Scott? We absolutely see that that is how Lydia evaluates situations. She is a strategic thinker. And I think that decision tree is a, a perfect kind of visual rendering of that. Mm-hmm. It's funny you say political because I feel like with Lydia, I feel like Lydia starts out the show as being like her goal in life would be like to be a senator's wife, but the show ends and she's like, I'm going to be the goddamn president of the United States of America. Right, right. And I'm going to banshee scream all the terrorists into oblivion. Crickets, cricket, cricket. (laughs) All right. Future will leave that in. (laughs) 
She definitely seems like she early on aspires to be a senator's wife or or maybe first lady, you know. Maybe. She definitely, though, thinks that she's going to be, at least in the public eye, second fiddle. I think she really buys into that concept of like- Behind every strong man is a stronger woman. Or a woman exactly. rolling her eyes. She She thinks- that she's not the sort of person who would ever get elected, but she is absolutely the sort of person to get someone else elected and pull the strings in the background or behind the scenes, I guess would be a better way to put that. When I read the part with Lydia's decision tree, it reminded, it made me believe that she's the type of person who has a mind palace, you know, that she's able to recall. A bone arena, if you will. (laughs) What is should that a reference ex- to? Should we explain that? Like, because we make that joke and I feel like no one is Well, isn't actually... Mind Palace from Hannibal? Well, it's no, from Shakespeare from and lots of oh. other things. Because I feel like they, they used Mind Palace at one point in there too. But they, they use Bone say, Arena. They also use Bone Arena. Oh, on, no. On the show Hannibal. Like in the kind of same context of like Mind Palace. He says... I think he says the, the, bone, the bone arena of my mind. And it's like, I understand that you're saying first word bone as in calcified tissue, second word arena as in rink. And then, but it sounds like boner arena, bone arena. It, it sounds like a place kids went to hook up in the eighties. Like, Correct. oh man, Shirley and I are going to go to the bone arena tonight. You know what that means? Right. High five all around. The rules are different in the bone arena. (laughs) I like that 80s voice. But I do think that Lydia is the type of person who has a mind palace where she just keeps all this information in a in a palace or a mansion or whatever just all it's pretty it's probably a mansion. Mansion Probably a mansion more Lydia's style. Yeah, she has a mind mansion where she keeps all the information just filed away in a wonderful library. Info mansion. Her info mansion? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, so when I saw her branching decision tree, that was what I felt like. I was like, she's got an info mansion. I do agree. Like, I feel the same way about this book that I feel about the episode of The Tell, which I feel like, you know, heavily inspired this storyline because Allison and Scott are really cute together, but I feel like that should just be a subplot instead of like the main plot. Scott and Allison don't do anything. They're yeah. just like walking around being adorable, getting distracted by wanting to make out with each other's faces. And they don't actually do much until like the very end. And still that's just Scott being rescued. Yeah. Yeah. They should have had a different story. And that story is Derek and Kate. It and- kind of felt like that was the primary story. Yeah. Anyway. I, I do feel like that should have been this book. And On Fire was the Hale Mansion at the end of it. But um, oh, oh, instead of you a giant, that's, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Instead of a giant forest fire, it should have been the Hale House is on fire at the end of this book. It does feel like that that was like the main story that mm-hmm. Nancy wanted to tell, and I was all there for that because it was awful and horrifying because that's how abuse is. But but it, it does feel like other stuff had to be kind of thrown in um, because Scott is the lead. I mean, that was ultimately yeah. yeah. I mean, I understand why it's just, I really, I really loved Derek's backstory. And I feel like the fact that he's more of a supporting character is why she was able to do that. Agree. 
Yeah. I know she's able to give like a little bit of backstory for Scott, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. And I feel like just because he is more of a central character, that's, I mean, like I said, for Italian novels, you can't do that kind of stuff. You can't mess too much with like the, the board, if you will. Stuff. Yeah. Right. Chess board, you can't go mess around with that stuff. You can only yeah. have right. slight little changes or additions to it. And I mean, we still end up getting a lot retconned later on that is established in this book. Mm-hmm. Right. I guess starting off with Derek's age, maybe we well, never maybe. actually figure out how old he is in the show. Because I, if you, he's sixteen at the time that the Kate thing happens, according to On mm-hmm. Fire. Six years pass between then and the start of season one, according to Derek. Yeah, so twenty-two. So he should be twenty-two when the show starts, and nothing over the course of the show says otherwise. That's yeah. true. I just, yeah, I feel like he is 16 and that makes the most amount of sense. I just feel like later on, they kind of didn't want to make it seem like Derek was underage when it happened with Kate, even though that's the only thing that makes sense. When Ian Nelson comes on, I thought he was supposed to be 16. And it's the only thing that really makes sense. It's not actually stated in the book, but it seems to be implied that Claudia, she's not actually named in the book, but she's Mrs. Slinsky in the book, but Claudia is dying from cancer, but that's obviously changed when we finally get the answer in 3B as to what she died from. Right. And I remember early on seeing headcanons and then fic that was written that Styles shaved his head in solidarity with his mother when she lost her hair due to chemo, which I thought was a really interesting character explanation for his buzz cut. But ultimately, I think frontotemporal dementia works better for the larger themes of the show, especially identity and the horror of identity erasure. We see that all throughout the show, though most clearly in season two with Jackson and then in season 3B with Styles. And just if you think about how many horror movies are at their core about the erasure of identity. You have all possession movies, of course, and not to mention the ones in recent years whose premise rests explicitly on dementia, like uh, The Taking of Deborah Logan, Hereditary, Relic, The Dark and the Wicked. There's almost been a little bit of a, a trend there where it was like, here's this horrifying thing that happens in real life. How can we extrapolate on that to tell scary stories? And I right. think that Teen Wolf manage that in 3B because you have the possession storyline, but it's also alongside this very realistic fear that Styles has that he could also have frontotemporal dementia. And that's a very right. scary idea, but whether it's medical or supernatural, the idea of having your identity erased or taken away from you is very scary. And because Teen Wolf is so much about identity, I think that that fit a lot more cleanly into what the show is ultimately about. Yeah. It's very true, but I do remember some of those. Specifically, I remember one comic about Style shaving his head, and I'm pretty sure you know which one I'm talking about there. I know exactly which one you're talking about, And yes. it did make me tear up. It's beautiful. Aww. I'll try to see if I can find it and put in the show notes. Yeah. Credit whoever created, up, created that, because it was just really amazing, but also so sad. <laughs> yeah, as my little cousin used to say, it gave me the worst eye tears. Also, we have like, full character erasure in 6A with right. uh, with the ghost riders, you know, with styles and then a whole town or many towns and stuff like that, where it's like, you know, people just are erased from existence. Another thing that is retconned from the book is we have Derek's father being the alpha, but it's Talia later. And I love that she gets to be the alpha, that Mama Hale gets to be the alpha. It was very unexpected, but- It feels uh, just, right. 
Yeah, it feels right. Before we got into season six with finding out more about Styles's name, I like to think that Derek's father took Talia's last name, Hale, and mm-hmm. that Sheriff, who I refuse to call Noah, <laughs> took Stalinsky, which was Claudia's last name as his own. Which we also have uh, Kira's father doing canonically. Right. Yeah. Taking the last name Yukimura. We even get like in season one with the conversation with coach, it seems like it suggested there that he named Styles whatever he named him because it was Claudia's suggestion. And it feels to me like it makes more sense if it's her Polish heritage that Stalinsky's her last name. But I just really like the idea of a lot of the male characters taking their wives' surnames instead of the wives taking their surnames. Got a lot of powerful women on the show. I feel like Styles would become, if he, if he married Lydia, he would be Styles Stalinsky Martin. I feel like he'd be the type to take her name, but he still likes Stalinsky, so he'd probably like hyphenate it. I know there's a lot of fix in which he's uh, Styles Stalinsky Hale. Yeah, I have seen that. Yeah. The name on his business card goes all the way around the card. <laughs> <laughs> it starts on the front of the card and continues on the back exactly. of the card. I could see Styles doing that. I think he would actually really enjoy doing that. That be would like, be funny, Go to the printer actually. and be like, so can you print then continuously onto the back of the card? They're like, sir, what? I'm giving you money. Do what I want. <laughs> we do get a very, I feel like, very good characterization from Melissa because she's very fiercely protective of Scott, even oh, yeah. as he has like abusive, terrible father. And I feel like that's very true to the show. Absolutely. Yeah. Another thing, I guess it's not explicitly stated, but in the book, Laura knows about Kate. And in the show, it's either in formality or code breaker when Kate is sort of taunting Derek and asking if he ever told Laura about her. And while he doesn't answer, the implication is that he did not. Yeah. It's a pretty strong implication, you know, I would say, because- he doesn't answer. He just looks very upset by that line of questioning, which is very much like an abuser line of questioning because she kind of implies that the fact that he didn't tell anyone is an admission of guilt, basically, yeah. that that he should be carrying. But in the book, Laura does actually know about Kate, which surprised me. Yeah. yeah. She doesn't have all the information, but Derek is like, I met this woman. And she's like, oh? She has most of the information. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, she... She knows how old she is. Oh, right. Laura. Well, Laura's Laura's well, barely older than Derek. Yeah, I mean, but true. also, and I feel like this kind of makes sense. She says, in terms of Derek's age, for like from the pack's point of view, he's a man now. He's sixteen, and he is a man. That's true. We are dealing and I feel with like cultural it's a, stuff. Yeah, right. it's like for a different culture, where it's like, yeah, he counts himself. She sees him as a man who's able to make his own decisions. And that's how the pack would see him too. Like he would still need to eventually introduce her to the alpha to basically get the alpha's like approval. And Laura is encouraging him to do that. Mm -hmm. But it's not a matter of Derek, this relationship isn't healthy for you. And they don't, it's not like an age difference sort of thing. Mm -hmm. It's you are keeping a secret from the pack that you shouldn't be keeping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But she's pretty encouraging, yeah. actually. Yeah. Which, I mean, it, it it does make sense since they do say from a cultural perspective that they consider him an adult at yeah. 16. And there are lots of, across the world, coming-of-age celebrations that happen at 15 or 16. So that's 
not outside the realm of possibility. And I'm I'm sure that there are 16-year-olds who have matured early enough that they do think like adults. I just don't think Derek is one of them. Yeah. Yeah. They actually Everyone have, matures at a different rate, you know? Yeah. They actually have in the book talking about how on Wolf Moon, he has to like basically uh, fight his cousin for their rank in the pack because they are both reaching that age where they're considered men. Yeah. I, I thought that world building was interesting, but then I, I recently when we were talking about like how you can't really apply that pack mentality to human beings because it kind of makes you an asshole at a certain point. Like if you have, like if you're still holding on to like Omegas where you've got a pack bitch and type of thing. Yeah. So I, I did think it was interesting. He was going to fight a family member for like the place in the pack, like on the list of pack members. And, also yeah. he, keeps talking about yeah the cousin he has to fight and also that laura made out with the cousin i guess that's the next thing remember oh, that and that, that was weird as hell i forgot about that i mean i don't have an issue with like alphas and betas but i didn't care for the addition of like even amongst the betas that there's a very clear pecking order and they have to fight physically to establish their place i didn't like that as yeah. much yeah i i was sort of a a forager if you will, going through on fire, picking up head cannons that I liked and putting back ones that I didn't. Yeah. I, I really like the detail though about how the Papa Hale, who we don't actually get any sort of name for, Kate and I just headcan. His name is Walt, if anyone's curious. But uh, <laughs> we just picked it up nowhere. No reason. Walt no Hale. Love it. So the idea that Papa Hale would lock the teenagers into the basement chaining them up during like particular I don't know the right term for whenever they're going through werewolf puberty but I know there's heat is a different thing <laughs> puppy puberty but puppy as they go through puppy puberty they puberty? might feel they might feel this need to challenge the alpha and mm. he didn't want that happening because it did sound like you know if you challenge an alpha you there has to be like a fight too maybe the mm -hmm. death I don't know but at least he would have to accept it if he is challenged he couldn't like just back down from that mm -hmm. so I thought that was an interesting detail to include and I think that makes a lot more sense than you know because later on in season four we get that flashback where Derek is wolfing out before a basketball game and I was like bullshit bullshit because their their family is way too stable and well-established as a pack to make that kind of mistake. Mm -hmm. And I don't know at what point we'll get into this, but one, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was the characterization of Teenage Derek and how much more I like it in On Fire than on the show. I did, going back to what first, like five minutes ago we were talking about, I actually had all of the same notes that you had about how I thought it was really interesting that Laura knew. And I would have really liked to have seen oh. on the show what Laura would have said to Derek if she knew everything. Like after the fire, what would she say to him? Would she at all blame him? Would she try to like absolve him of the guilt that he clearly feels? I think yeah. she would. I think she would outwardly try to absolve him, but inwardly blame him and resent him until they had an emotional catharsis later in life but then she was cut in half and they never got to have that emotional catharsis so it's a tragedy damn as a fellow steric fan what did you think about the steric in this book 
I I liked it. It's it's very I don't want to say subtle because it's there, but it it's very in keeping with their interactions on the show, which is kind of both of them caring more about what the other has to say than either of them would like to admit. Yeah, there's yeah. this one line that I actually like highlighted where Styles says to Derek, "I don't care what you say," and then it says Styles said, although of course he did. He waited. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I, 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 I like that. And I think a little bit goes the other way too, because in On Fire, Styles comments that it's stupid that Derek doesn't have a cell phone. Mm-hmm. And he is correct. It is stupid that Derek doesn't have a cell phone. Derek's reasoning for this is twofold. One, he doesn't really have anyone to call. And Styles is like, yeah, but I want to be able to reach you if I want to do that thing. And then the second reason is because Derek is concerned that he could be tracked by phone, which I think is really interesting given the events of Formality and Codebreaker, because that's ultimately how Styles figures out where Derek is. He is the one who comes up with the theory that Derek took Scott's phone specifically so that he could be tracked. That's Styles' idea. So I really like what goes on between them in On Fire because it essentially makes it sound like Styles made a big deal out of Derek not having a phone and him needing to have a phone. As of Wolfsbane, Derek has a phone. So either Styles got him one or he got one for himself at Styles' behest, either way, fantastic. And then Styles remembered Derek talking about being worried about being tracked by a cell phone, and that's how he puts together how to figure out where Kate is keeping Derek. Yeah. Oh, I love all that. It's good. Yeah. Derek is, like, opening up his cell phone to call, like, takeout or something, and he has the place saved. And But in his context, there's just one name, and it's Styles. And he's like, who keeps erasing all my numbers? Styles taking his cell phone and delete, no. uh, deleting everybody but himself. He his name would not be Styles. It'd be like dumbass. Have, no, Styles would program himself in there, so it'd be yeah. like, and Derek wouldn't know how to change it. <laughs> yeah. We've thought about this at like we've we've thought about this for years, well, and we're we're confident that Styles would have taken his phone, programmed his own name in it as something like styles the genius or some shit single mom supporter like genius wow and uh (laughs) and and derek just doesn't know how to change it and styles knows that he doesn't know how to change it the great one styles is what i it just absolutely breaks my heart though the detail with how derek was leaving kate and we don't know maybe he would have gone back maybe not the next day but he goes back that same night because he encounters little styles with Sheriff and mom coming out of the hospital and she's already sick and he thinks about how frail humans are and that's what causes him to go back to Kate. <laughs> I want to write all the fanfic about this though. How would Styles react if he found out about it? Could it be why Derek wanted to keep Styles at a distance in season one? I just want to write all the stories using this headcanon. Well, using this book canon. Yeah. And I also like during that scene that Derek can pick up on baby Styles being anxious and that causes him to identify with baby Styles. There's a line where it says that uh, Derek can tell that Styles is quote a bundle of nerves just like him. Mm-hmm. So he sees this little boy can tell that he is very anxious 
and feels a sense a, a sense of kinship because of that. And I think that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. I really liked the incorporation of our main characters, Scott and Styles, in Derek's teen years in the flashbacks, where we have Scott sitting at another table at the same diner as Laura and Derek. I believe it's Beacon Burger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, yeah, him crossing paths with Styles and his family. I think it's handled very well. Like, I know it can be frustrating in some stories where they try to like incorporate, oh, look, these characters actually cross paths way before then. But since they don't interact, they're just at the same place at the same time. I feel like it works really well. And it was a very clever use of it. Right. And they're usually not trying to, I mean, Beacon Hills is a pretty- Small, big place. I was going to say, it's mercurial in its way, but I don't think they're ever trying to make it out like it's a big city. So I also don't think it feels like, oh, what an insane coincidence that they would be in the same place. Like I didn't get the impression that that there are like, you know, 25 burger joints in Beacon Hills, right? Yeah, but so, Beacon Hills does have the one skyscraper. Just the one. <laughs> just the one. Mm-hmm. And the one ye old abandoned train depot. <laughs> <laughs> Someone actually, oh, I can't remember who it was. Someone contacted me and they were talking about how their headcanon was that the Hale family had been very like important to the town and like had gone back like generations and it was very like prosperous and then like once they died a lot of like the money like dried up in Beacon Hills and that's why there's like a half-built like mall and abandoned like train car and all this stuff. Beacon Hills was co-founded by Jeremiah Hale. I I think that, yeah, that makes sense that the Hale family was, the Hale family was the albatross of, of Beacon Hills. I don't know that reference, so please explain to me and our listeners. The Rime of the Ancient Mariner is a 19th century romantic poem, capital R, romantic poem. And it's basically about the, the albatross being the good luck of a ship until it is killed and then it becomes sort of the doom of, of the ship because because they killed something beautiful and they didn't need to. And I, I could kind of see the hail pack being like that, that, that they brought prosperity to Beacon Hills. They were they were a stabilizing factor that kept it grounded and and safe and balanced. And when they were murdered, that some part of the town spirit died with them. I like that. That's really cool. That user, by the way, is listener J period young 22. Nice. They are awesome. We hear you, J period young 22. Okay. Sorry. Her her pronouns are on here. She is very awesome. I always thought Kate's line about being a substitute teacher in Wolfsbane was a nod to the book. But after our interview with Nancy, it seems like it was the other way around. Mm-hmm. I thought that was very that, that it was actually intended as I think kind of a throwaway line or right. throwaway in the sense you know not to dismiss it but in the sense that it wasn't supposed to give us any specific information about her backstory so much as general information about who she is as a person which is yeah. terrible but then in the book it becomes actually a very specific reference to her trap I guess Going back to the hysteric thing, I really liked that at one point uh, Styles refers to Derek as 
that guy with the eyebrows. Oh my God. And that's capitalized. <laughs> he says, maybe if Derek did drive his car more often instead of jogging all over the place like the Flash, he could cut down on the risk that somebody might start to wonder about that guy with the eyebrows. <laughs> and it totally fits with many a fan's headcan that Styles would actually be writing a book about Derek's eyebrows and the way to interpret them and their meaning. And their many meanings. Just really hurt my soul. But I thought it was really interesting for some reason that that made Styles think of his mother and that made him miss her a little more than usual. Life in his head was accompanied by the soundtrack of a small, eternal, dull ache, but word was that would go away after a few decades. Oh, I thought wow. that was a really great, That's good. great line. Yeah. But also hurt. This might hurt. Could have also worked as the title. That's a great tagline. Probably like one of the best TV show taglines for a season ever. Right. Calissa, you were saying that on fire really feels like a natural extension of the tell in multiple mm-hmm. ways. And I completely agree. And one way that I think that manifests is that I completely understand why Scott and Allison have to have a significant part in the story because they are the two leads on the show. But as with the tell, I wanted the story to be about Styles trying to put together what happened with the Hailfire. Mm-hmm. And since they didn't really get deeply into that in the tell, I think it would have been really cool to have On Fire be about that. Like, okay, they didn't have time. You know, they they needed to show all the scenes with Scott and Allison and their romance because that's what they're doing. Yeah. But On Fire would have been a really cool place to have Styles doing that investigation mm-hmm. and putting those things together because that's the kind of thing that well, it's not in the tell, so clearly the show could go on without it. It wouldn't interfere with the show, but it would add a little bit more depth to what we see Styles doing in the tell, mm-hmm. where he's taking the hail fire file and applying the extra supernatural knowledge that he has that the sheriff's department does not have to contextualize some of this information. And I think it would have been really cool if that's what On Fire was. If On mm-hmm. Fire was a written version of Styles' investigation, the conclusions that he is coming to, and maybe even sort of comparing Derek's flashback of what happened six years ago with what Styles is imagining happened based on the information that he has available. And that scene that you described when we were talking about the tell, Will, that would involve Styles going to Derek and trying to get information out of him, but also wanting to tell him, I believe you, mm-hmm. and Derek's just not ready to hear it. Yeah. All of that could have happened in On Fire, and I think that would have been an amazing A story. Absolutely. I agree completely. I really wanted the ring detail to be included on the show. Like after reading it in the book where Kate leaves the ring in the ashes, I just really wanted that to be part of the show. Yeah. I know we've talked cool. about that before, but it it's is something such that Derek a just crushing detail. held on to. Yeah. 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 And and the fact that he holds on to it in the book, that he makes a conscious decision to keep it. It's it's actually not in Derek's flashback, it's in Scott's vision when Derek accidentally cuts Scott with his claws when he's saving Scott, but because of the the cut with his claws, Scott has a vision of Derek's memory, similar to the way Jackson did when Derek cut him with his claws. Yeah. And it says, the Hale siblings insane with grief, but not shifting because the fire trucks were there and the EMTs were there and even their grief was stolen from them. Derek saw a glint of metal in the wreckage, a melted gold ring with little green stones. 
Had it slipped off by accident or had she taken it off her finger and let it drop into the fire? Did she want him to find it? Had she wanted him to know? He stared at it for a lifetime, an eternity. Then he picked it up and put it in his pocket. Tears slid down his face for days and then they hardened like the molten pools of metal in the foundation of his home. Very well written. And I absolutely believe that that Derek, show Derek, six years later, still has that ring. Yeah. But do you think she actually intended for him to find it because she expected him to be in the house? Yes, I do. Because I think that she went back after. Later. Yeah. What do you guys think about the wolf that we see in this book? I thought it was fun when I was reading it. And I was like, is that somebody? Because I was thinking like, it's well, this is actually just a rip off of Malia. I thought it could have been interesting if that wolf was a Hale family member who shifted during the fire to somehow like, like, like maybe get through like a very small window or something to squeeze out. Yeah. That could be Cora and just never shifted back because, because of trauma. I definitely think it has to be a werewolf because we we know that wolves aren't indigenous to California and I'm not sure what the purpose of a regular wolf would be to the story of Beacon Hills. For the Scott Stiles fan out there, uh, I really liked the I say fan as if there's only one of them. Scott Stiles <laughs> fans out there. There's a moment that I really liked where it's from Scott's point of view because it does shift POVs throughout the story. And um, Stiles comes up to him wearing the bullseye t-shirt that we see actually, I think, in the tell. And it says, it kind of freaked Scott out when he wore it as if it meant that Stiles was a target. They both knew the Alpha wanted Scott to kill with him to cement Scott's acceptance that he was a member of the Alpha's pack, who better take down than the guy Scott's mom had once referred to as his litter mate. And I thought that was a- <laughs> adorable. Like, calling him the litter mate is just That's so freaking so cute. cute. That's really cute. Oh my God. Good one, Mama McCall. Although I, I actually remember seeing this thing. It was a steric article or something. And they were like, who actually believes it was a coincidence that he's wearing a bullseye over his heart when they meet? Because it was in the pilot. Just a quirk of fate and the gap. (laughs) (laughs) I did like the bit at the end of the book where it's all the bushes are on fire, but it's all the stuff that Mountain Ash comes from. And Scott is like forced, he can't leave. And he's pushing uh, Allison out. And like in his mind, he was talking about, he's like, what's she going to think that I'm just not, I'm just not leaving. It's like, well, I can't tell you the truth. I really love the ending whenever Kate shows up and she just like is smirking at Derek and it's just, ugh, just want to claw her face off. (laughs) With claws. With claws. And it's just like so sad in the flashbacks whenever Derek's like super protective of her and how he mm-hmm. says he'd rip out someone's throat if they tried to hurt her and everything. And it's just like, oh, puppy, she needs her throat ripped out, not someone yeah. else. She's the monster under your bed yes, or in your is. bed. Or in your bed. Oh, no. I said, first, so said I had a very dark fan theory about Kate that I didn't know if I should share. And then you someone wrote, it. you should. It was me. <laughs> we could always cut it. Like Nancy said that, you know, as writers, a lot of times they'll include interesting little things, but they don't fully flesh it out because it's not important to the story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so this is about men, werewolves and humans were so simple. They always assumed you wanted them. Some fat man on a couch burping and watching cage matches. Oh yeah, you wanted him. A guy who threw you around the room and accused you of cheating on him. Oh yeah, you wanted him. Like a hole through the heart. But the good one, the one that you really did want, a flash of rage 
roared through Kate, but she kept it at bay. She could feel it trying to take over like a wolf scratching at her door. Rage was not her enemy. Rage got the job done. For one thing, I just really love the, she could feel it trying to take over like a wolf scratching at her door. That is yeah, a wow. fantastic line. Yeah, very good. I feel like it's about Chris. And I'm not saying it's like necessarily like a fully incest thing, but I feel like she's talking about Chris. How... I had a feeling you were going to say that. Yeah, because it's dark. That Chris is the good one who she can't get to like acknowledge her, who she can't like get his attention. Oh, I love that. Right. That's rough, but I like it. And I'm not saying it fully has to be like a sexual thing. I'm just like, you know, I think that she wants him almost to be like on the dark side with her, like to like be able to like corrupt him. But he well, we see him doing obviously some dark things in season one. We ultimately know he's the good guy. Yeah. And he has a good heart and he's one who's able to like walk away from the family. And I feel like she wanted to like dig her claws, so to speak, into him and make sure like he was just as up as she was. The fact that she can't is what it makes her very, it's like what builds the rage inside of her. I like that. I mean, it's fun. I, I think giving monstrous characters this complicated relationship, especially with someone they're related to, you know, and the way, especially the way Nancy described it, you know, but the one who, but the good one and all that, it's like the hole in your heart and all that's, that's good. Yeah, I, I think, I, th- I think it makes sense because I think she has a complicated relationship with Chris. Like on one hand, I think she hates that he has a moral compass. And on the other hand, she respects him for it. But then she kind of hates that she respects him for it. You know, right. it's just like a weird tangle of feelings that she yeah. has that don't necessarily all make sense together, but feelings don't have to. Yeah. No, that's really cool that she's this agent of chaos and she loves being an agent of chaos, but then it infuriates slash does not infuriate um, her that he, belie- he fascinates that he believes in something because mm-hmm. she doesn't believe in anything. No. But he has a belief system. And she's like, that's really interesting. I hate it, but it's interesting. But yeah. I also hate it. But I also kind of like it. Like, I, I feel like on some level, she knows that if she ever did succeed in pulling him to her side, he wouldn't be as interesting anymore. Right. So, She'd be right. done with the plaything. Yeah. Like right. once, yeah. once my puppy gets the squeaker out of her toy, she's done with it. Right. Well, and that's kind of like the thing with, in the tell when she because like like we talked about when we first introduced when Kate was first introduced is that Kate doesn't see people she sees assets like what do you Mm -hmm. what does she get from each person like how is she able how are these assets able to further whatever she's into at the moment and when she realizes that Derek doesn't have any information that can further her quest she's like well I guess it's bullet in the face time type of thing and then with Chris it'd be like well if she did turn him to the dark side she'd be like well you're not as interesting anymore you don't infuriate me the way you used to so now it's just who cares about you there's a a strange cognitive dissonance there that's like she really wants to drag him into the mud, but she also knows that as soon as she does, it won't be satisfying because she won't have that thing that she wants to do anymore. Yeah. It's the the um throw the hunt, as she says. Yeah. The chase. Yeah. The the euphoria of the chase. Yeah. When you when you catch it, even though the whole point of the chase is that you're trying to catch it, you know that as soon as you do, it's over. What what really struck me about how Nancy Holder wrote about Derek and Kate was that regardless of whether the show 
tiptoes around calling Kate a sexual predator, On Fire doesn't. Yeah. There's really no getting around it in On Fire, which I respect. It's really not interested in being like, well, it's complicated. I mean, you know, at what age do you really fully mature and feel like an adult? No, it's like every detail that is added to that backstory seems to me specifically engineered to make it clear mm-hmm. that Kate is a sexual predator and that they're, they were not on equal footing, even if you didn't have the whole deception side of things, right? The book emphasizes just how inexperienced Derek is. He'd never so much as kissed a girl or gone on a date. He describes her as practically a teacher, which connects to that line in Wolfsbane that we were talking about. There's a lot of fear language in how Derek views her when we get flashbacks from his perspective. Derek is described as flustered, even a little frightened. That's a direct quote. But he gets out of the pool. He It says he's almost afraid to shower. He practically runs out of the school looking over his shoulder And days later, when he has gone back to the pool and she hasn't done it again, he's torn between being disappointed and being relieved that she's staying away from him. So there's really a lot of language of anxiety around that relationship before he gets more comfortable with her that I think is really telling. And in those early interactions where they're still in public, Kate is really careful to make sure that Derek feels equally responsible for the inappropriateness of their interactions. So you have her saying that she's sorry if she misread his intentions. Not like, I'm sorry if I made you uncomfortable or I realized that that was not inappropriate because I'm an adult. It was like, oh, I'm sorry that you made it seem like you were interested. That's how she frames it. And I feel like that's very intentional on her part. And so then it has, then he thought about how he'd glanced up at the lifeguard tower every time he'd made a turn to head down the lane. Maybe he had been sending out signals. So she's kind of planting this idea in his head that he actually brought it on himself. Yeah. Victim blaming. Exactly. She, she's sowing those seeds very intentionally so that if, if anyone else were to see what was going on, and question that relationship she's kind of incepted Derek into thinking like I started it yeah you know it was my fault because I was sending out signals to her and she was just responding to them she's not responsible right even though of course she's the adult yeah I mean yeah a lot of predators do the whole like you can't tell anyone or we'll both get in trouble and I feel like that's definitely the kind of way she presents it absolutely Yeah. yeah and significantly Nancy Holder ensures that we're very clear on the fact that Kate sees him as a child. This is not a situation where she is talking to him and she's not sure how old he is, but he seems very mature. When we get those scenes from her perspective, she's constantly thinking about the fact that he's a child, right? She says, Mm -hmm. what a body still boyish, but with the sweet promise of a truly splendid man, which is just so creepy. It's just a weird thing to say. And when we see these scenes from Kate's point of view, she she often makes note to herself when he says something childish. So there's a scene where she asks what they should drink to, and he kind of shrugs. He has no idea what they should drink to. And so she says, to life, love, and the pursuit, and, and stops there. Mm-hmm. And he says, the pursuit of happiness? As if he thought maybe she had just forgotten the expression. And she says, sure, that's worth pursuing. And I really love that exchange because you learn so much about them in those like three lines of dialogue that she 
she doesn't say life, love, and the pursuit of happiness. She says life, love, and the pursuit. And that's very, very intentional. Yeah. Because she doesn't pursue happiness. That's not what she's looking for. Yeah. yeah. She's looking for gratification. Yeah. It's, it's horrifying, but I love the characterization of Kate in this book. I mean, I think, it, think it's very clear that, yeah, she's a straight up predator. Yeah. Yeah. She's and, very... and in, in that scene, you know, when he says that he kind of help in his mind helpfully provides the rest of the expression oh the pursuit of happiness and she very intentionally doesn't say oh yeah that's what I meant she says sure that's worth pursuing yeah Yeah. where it's you know she's kind of like there's some double speak there she's like if you were an adult you would pick up on how strange that is to say that she right to his face is is verbalizing her love of the chase Mm -hmm. with him being the quarry in this scenario but because he's a child he doesn't pick up on that and I think she kind of relishes that double speak it's like a little private joke she has with herself that he is not picking up on what's between the lines of what she says yeah mm-hmm. we as the readers do because we ha- are seeing things from both of their perspectives so we have more information than either of them has individually going back to what you were saying will about changing perspectives the reader ends up with more information than any individual character does because they can see the same sequence of events from two different points of view. Right. And then, you know, there's the fact that she puts something in his drink and it's Wolfsbane because it has to work on a story level, but obviously on a symbolic level that kind of connects it much more to real world crimes. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the fact that it's Wolfsbane is irrelevant. We all instinctively understand what the story is about when it says they're on a date and she's put something in his drink. Yeah. And then you have this line. Derek had been a virgin and a werewolf going through puberty and she'd seduced him and taunted and lured him to do a full shift. He never had. Impressive. She looked down at the ring he had given her. Her lips twitched and then she began to laugh. She laughed all the way to the Hale homestead the killing fields yeah it's very, very well written it is very jokery too yeah it, it is. is very like the killing joke type vibe there and then the there's the fact that the book connects those past events to kate in the present in the present of uh the first season it's not just limited to what happened in the past so we get both derek and kate telling the reader you know mm-hmm. uh what happened during the events of the tell. And when we get Kate's perspective, she says, maybe she should have taken it, or it says, I guess, because it's third person, maybe she should have taken advantage of Derek while he'd been down on the floor, writhing from the 900,000 volts she sent skittering through his kick-ass body for old time's sake. Kate was all about taking advantage, which that scene is really bad enough without that extra little tidbit. But it's also, to me, it feels like these details are not, for shock value there so that you can't misinterpret this sequence of events right there's no way to read this and think like well there were mistakes made on both sides I mean we really see I feel like just Chris does some horrible things because he feels like that's living up to the code Victoria also does terrible things I feel like she's got her own code but I feel like she feels like all of it is just necessary. What she does is necessary. Especially to protect Allison. I right. think her code is, it. I will do whatever it takes to protect Allison. That's her code. Right. 
Kate finds out Derek's a werewolf on the first night before she even sleeps with him. And then she sleeps with him and continues to. And that's just purely for her own enjoyment. Right. And knowing how much worse it's going to be. Well, I think she plans on killing him, but for her own enjoyment of like knowing that she's just using him to then kill his family. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The The detail of her knowing that he is a werewolf before they sleep together ensures that we can't look at this as an issue of a, a philosophical issue of do the ends justify the means right because by the time they sleep together there are no ends mm-hmm. she's already gotten to the end she's already gotten to the thing that she wanted which is finding out whether the hails are werewolves and they are she already yeah. got to the end that was her goal yeah she so could have th- moved on from yeah, she could right. have been yeah, like so oh let's it, go buy let's go to the circle okay and buy some gasoline. Yeah, there, there's no, there's no other reason for her to do it besides that she wants to. Yeah, and she could have tried seducing Peter. As yeah. far as we know, Peter doesn't seem to be involved with anyone, and he exactly. would be more likely closer to her age group, I guess. Question mark. Oh. age. But yeah, I mean, she doesn't see. She wants to go for the most vulnerable, and that's yeah. Derek. Yeah, exactly. I, I really like the vision that Scott has about the fire, but I was a little upset that it wasn't Styles. And I was like, this is exactly what I wanted, but it's with Scott. Uh-huh. And obviously, and uh, well, and obviously it doesn't, because the, the book wasn't ultimately canon, it doesn't change Scott's perspective on Derek. It, it, you know, it doesn't have any effect on their relationship, of course. Right. But I really wanted that to be about Derek and Styles. That's really what I wanted. Would have been cool. And overall, I prefer how teenage Derek is characterized in On Fire versus the show. Um, I I liked Ian Nelson as young Derek, but I feel like personality-wise, Nancy Holder's characterization of teenage Derek made more sense to me than what the show did in season four. Because... They had Derek being kind of a little bit cocky, you know, cocky 16-year-old. And I, I get it. I, I see the archetype of the 16-year-old boy that they're going for. I just don't totally see that as Derek. In the book, Laura describes Derek as her oh-so-serious little brother. Oh-so-serious. Yeah. And I that just sort of makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, right. And he's, you know, he's very reserved he, as is very clear from the Kate storyline, is actually desperate for affection, but also very afraid of rejection. He's standoffish around people because he feels like he can't be his whole self with them, which makes sense. There's a whole extremely important part of his life that he can't share with anyone. Right. You know, he's very pack and family focused. Those are the most important things to him. And I think he's open to having or would be open to having friends and meaningful relationships if that's something that he could talk about. But he doesn't really know how to be himself minus that. Yeah. And because of that, he experiences a lot of anxiety when he's away from the pack. That's how you end up with that bundle of nerves line that I was talking about. Being surrounded by humans makes him feel like a stranger in a strange land. He feels like, I I think there was some description in the book about Derek feeling like it's really hard to understand the way humans communicate because it's a combination of speech and body language, but it's all very confusing and hard to parse. You know, people, humans will say one thing and mean another 
and there are all these very nuanced social cues that he's just not capable of picking up on. And I feel like we absolutely see that in the show. I feel like, you know, when when Scott asks Derek for information, it's like, will I kill someone? Yes. Like that that's just yeah. how he doesn't he doesn't understand like sugarcoating and things like that. He doesn't understand these concepts. Like why why would you do that? They ask a question, surely that means they want the answer, right? Yeah. Two things. One, I think Derek's personification in season four works if it's if we're operating under Calissa's theory that it's actually Peter we're seeing wearing a Derek face, which I cannot get out of my head now. And that is all I think it is because that makes the most sense. And two, I remember that- me, Jeff Davis, if you ever bring back Teen Wolf. There you go. Uh, I remember that from the book when he was saying like he didn't know how to understand humans and all that. And I didn't buy that completely just because, I mean, granted, we don't know werewolf culture and all that type of stuff, but let's just assume for the sake of argument he went to kindergarten, first grade. He did the normal human track of education. And also there are human beings in his family who I'm just assuming were married from outside um, type of thing. And I just never really bought that because I'm like, I feel like if you live around a group of people for 16 years, you probably have a pretty good sense of communication. See, I, I absolutely buy it. Because first of all, you have to remember that being a werewolf is both cultural and biological. Yes. Um, so, but then the the other part of that, I think, is I, while you were speaking, I was thinking spoken like someone who does not experience social anxiety. No, of course. Oh, 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 absolutely. But, because yeah, there's a difference between being able to function and being able to feel comfortable. Yeah. And it's entirely possible that if the culture of the the area where you live geographically is different from the culture at home, you can function in both cultures. It doesn't mean you have the same comfort level. They're two completely different things. I mean, right. yeah, I mean like, it's the same, like, like I was just saying with non-werewolf people, just the other day, Kate and I were talking about how like one friend of ours is able to like make friends wherever she goes. And then Kate and I haven't made a new friend since LA when it was Will, you, Will. seven years ago. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you had a slam dunk with me. So really, do you need other friends? I, no, I mean, the answer is no. Clearly not. Some people, like, you know, he comments about how, like, Laura's, Laura is able to, like, you know, just blend in super well and make all sorts of friends and excel at the human school. Mm-hmm. But he really struggles with it. And I feel like he doesn't necessarily want to do well until he like meets Kate and even still he wants to bring her into his werewolf world not become part of hers uh, he wants her to have the bite of your world yes thank uh, you he wants her to get a bite and because you know he's talking about how he'd be able to like impress her if he, she was a werewolf and he could like show her how he could like provide and all this stuff build a den sorry that's build not from the book that's from my head canon oh but continue. It, but at one point he does say like she brings him into her den and it's like oh more oh, like really? lays spider I into the web forgotten about that mm-hmm. he does say that he feels like she's opening up his world that's true he does use I- that language a little bit i i do agree with you that he wants to bring her into his culture but i think it's also the first time he's felt motivated to try to be more connected to the human right. world All right, Wolfies, it's time for our interview with Nancy Holder, the author of On Fire. Let's have a listen. So, Nancy, 
how did you find yourself in the world of Teen Wolf? Oh, well, it was very exciting because I was at San Diego Comic-Con and my agent wrote me a note and he said, you should go to this booth where this eight editor is and she wants to know if you want to write a Teen Wolf novel. So I was home from Comic-Con that night and I watched all the Teen Wolf episodes I could find. And then I got up and I went to, I don't know if you've ever been to Comic-Con or know the history of Comic-Con, but all the really good panels get full very early. So you have to stand in line and you have to sit through a lot of stuff you don't care about. So I was because <laughs> yep. I'd stayed up all night watching Teen Wolf and loving it. And I had not watched it before. I'd heard of it, but I hadn't watched it. So um, I sat in the hall and I kept going like this, dozing through buying vinyl toys and all these other programs I did not relate to, but I had to keep that seat. So finally they go and here they come from Teen Wolf and the room exploded. People <laughs> went nuts. And uh, what I noticed and the thing as a writer, I'm noticing there were as many guys as there were women going in crazy for Teen Wolf, going absolutely out of their minds. And I thought, okay, this is not a girl book. You know, this is not a, a girl project. This is everybody. And so that was really, really cool. And so then the Toe Tylers came, Jeff Davis came, all these people came in. I think Russell Mulcahy was there. I don't remember. But anyway, they all came up to the main dais, you know, the stage, and they started talking about the show and people were just hanging on every word. And I thought I was even more jazzed up because I'd already watched the episodes. I already thought this is a really cool show. So I went straight to the booth and I said, hi, I'm your new Teen Wolf author. <laughs> and the editor knew me. Her name is Jennifer Heddle and she knew me. And so she said, great. And so that's how I entered the world of Teen Wolf. That's so cool. That's awesome. Wow. Thank you. It was it was like a little Hollywood dream story, you know, it really was. It was, it was great. I didn't get to go the first year for Teen Wolf, but uh, I think it was third and fourth seasons. I was able to see the panels at Comic-Con. Yeah, I had to wait there all day <laughs> before I got there. No, what I'm talking about, you have to be devoted. It's like the one thing, it's like if you, if any of you ever go to Disneyland, it's like, if you want to go on Rise of the Resistance, that's what you do. That's that's all you're going to do that day is try to get on to Rise of the Resistance, which I have not gone on yet. So <laughs> very excited. But yeah, well, good for you. It was crazy. And I will say as a sort of a sad aside, um, during that whole heady experience, I saw Ned Vecini, if you know who he mm -hmm. was, and um, he was actually standing in line to get a Team Wolf poster signed. And they all looked up. He said, they've already given me the business. Like, why are you standing in line? You're a writer on the show. Why Why are you doing this? And he said, well, I just didn't know if it was okay. So oh, I thought that was adorable. Oh, and adorable. I, Very, I ran story. into him later at a, um, a young adult literature event at the Los Angeles Public Library. And we talked in the um, garage after the event for probably an hour and a half. And when he he decided to go away um it was quite a shock and i was really stunned but you know i'm, I'm glad that team wolf got two episodes from him so yay yay for ned the show is definitely better for his involvement when i when i would like just as an aside when i would go on to set the set to do buffy stuff people would at first the first few times they would look at me like why are you here i said i'm here to write a book about the show and they're like like what kind of book like they read books about our show and we're like, yes lots of books <laughs> really 
And are you like from the National Enquirer? <laughs> it was, and it was really odd to them. They did not, they didn't, they didn't get it. But after a while, they did. But at yeah. first, they were very puzzled. Right. Why do people read books about our show? We're a TV show, you know. And I'm like, there's lots of stuff. Don't people buy underwear with your faces on it? So, <laughs> I was obsessed with Buffy. That was like before Teen Wolf. It was my big fandom. That and, you know, like, then there was, you know, Angel and Firefly, Dollhouse, like those little, they were very more like small fandoms, but, you know, Buffy, that's, uh, it'll always hold a very special place in my heart. Thank you. Me too. Speaking of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Teen Wolf, I have to pose the question that is on everyone's mind. Vampires or werewolves? (laughs) So do you like your son or your daughter? Um, <laughs> Pick a side. The way I thought about this was I thought, well, to evade answering which one's my favorite, I'll talk about the difference. And to me, vampires are weird and creepy and spooky and gothic and all that stuff. Werewolves are more straightforward. They're action. They're um, bombastic. And there's lots of fighting and doing and being where to me vampires are more in the shadows so i would say one is definitely much more gothic-y kind of long mythology and you know the vampire lestat and all that stuff and werewolves are more straightforward one of the things i absolutely loved with a passion on team wolf was the way the werewolves battled each other and i even told um, Jeff and the show that they remind me of, I used to live in Japan, they remind me of Kabuki. It was like very Japanese stylistic poses. And I it just, every time they'd fight, I'm like, yes, another fight. So <laughs> on Buffy, there usually were three fights per episode. And they would say, okay, here's fight number two. And so they did have, you know, Kung Fu, Buffy had Kung Fu. So she was a more active vampire world. But I think that what I loved about Teen Wolf was just how active it was and how passionate it was. And, and there was a lot of, you know, if you remember the theme song from Angel and Buffy, la, 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 it's so sad and you so moved. And, and it's, it's like really involved. And it's almost, mm-hmm. Joss and the, and the writers called the interactions among the characters, the soap opera. And in a lot of ways, it's very melodramatic. And so in that way, I think vampires are are a little more angsty and twisty and, you know, a lot more relationship driven in some ways than werewolves. I mean, you're going to go out and hunt. And yes, vampires hunt and all that. But a lot of vampire material is not really about the hunt. It's about feeling guilt about the hunt or lusting after someone or, you know, there's there's a something else. And the to me, especially on Team Wolf, the hunt was straightforward. We're hunting. And so for that reason, I think they're very different. So how to pick, I, I really can't. One thing I will say is obviously I was involved with Buffy for a lot longer than I was with Teen Wolf. And um, I wish I had been contracted to write more Teen Wolf novels. I'm the one and only, and I don't know why. I know you're going to ask me that. It's on the list, but I don't. And Buffy just kept cooking. And I still get requests now and then to write something about Buffy or for Buffy or a Buffy thing. Wow. Buffy will never die again. No, I hope not. (laughs) Three times is enough for anyone. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, um, yeah, so 
uh, on the subject of just like you told us how you wrote specifically for Teen Wolf, how did you get into writing television tie-ins in general? Okay, well, that's an interesting story in itself because the very first tie-in I ever wrote was for the series of Highlander. And Russell McCahey was one of the driving forces of the films. So that was really when I, when Jeff figured that, when I told Jeff that, he's like, oh my gosh, well, I'll have to tell Russell because I'm a huge Highlander fan. And so uh, that was kind of a, a mistake. <laughs> I, I, um, I was asked by an editor, would you be interested in writing a Highlander novel? And um, I had never written any tie-in material at all, ever. And I, I said, well, I guess. And she said, okay, I have to drive to LA and you have to ha take a meeting. I'm like, oh my God, I'm all excited. And um, so I get in my beat up old Volkswagen and <laughs> I drive to Los Angeles and I go to a bungalow and I meet my liaison, who is the driving force behind the idea that Highlander should have a publishing program. Her name is Gillian Horvath. She's still a good friend of mine. And um, so she had said to um, Bill Panzer and his partner, we should have this thing called tie-in novels. And so they were looking for writers. And so um, what I did before, I forgot what I did, but what I did before that was I, I faxed, we had faxes then, uh, we had faces and we had faxes. And I faxed 13 ideas here. These are my ideas for a Highlander novel. And then I think I even had to write a, a treatment or an outline. And then I got sent to LA and um, I, uh, I met with Bill Panzer and Gillian and they had made an, um, a reservation at a nice restaurant, but it turned out it was the graduation day in Los Angeles for most of the high schools. And we had to wait 45 minutes till we sat down. So they kept yakking about, well, did you get the rushes from Gastown and did you do this and that? And I'm all excited because it's all Hollywoody stuff and I'm eavesdropping because I'm a writer. <laughs> and then finally we sit down after 45 minutes and he goes, well, I didn't like your outline. Oh. And I said, well, you approved it, which was the magic thing to say. And I didn't know it. And he's, and Gillian said, you did approve it, Bill. And he went, oh, okay. Then we have to go with it. And I'm like, what? And so <laughs> I, I thought this, this tie-in thing is not going to be my thing in publishing. I'm, I'm not going to do this again. It's too weird. And he said, I want I want your novel to be more than a TV episode, more. I'm like, okay, okay. So I was making all these subplots and this character development. I'm going nuts with my, my thing, my outline. And so he goes, you know, like, so we had another conversation. He says, like, you know, like, I could only afford 50 extras in a ballroom scene, but you could put in 300. So make it like that, like more than an episode. I'm like, oh, oh. It's it's like make it more lavish, not necessarily more complex or more like a deep novel, make it fancier. Right. So one of the things he wanted, if you've ever watched Highlander, is that the, the these guys are immortal and they whack off each other's heads. And when they whack off each other's heads, they get the energy of the other mortal guy. It's called a quickening. And he wanted a quickening in space. He wanted a quickening in midair. So I had them fall out of an airplane and he was thrilled that I had thought of this. I'm like, this is weird. And I thought, I'll never do another tie-in in my life. This is too crazy. But obviously I didn't listen to myself because <laughs> the next tidbit, <laughs> they, oh, that's an interesting show. So that was how though, I was Highlander and I was just crazy about Highlander. I loved that show. And that's how I got started. 
That's awesome. Very cool. That's awesome. I loved that show too. I watched all of it uh, when it was doing reruns, when the Sci-Fi Channel first was a thing and good. Um, They had that on and they also had the spinoff of the show that I'm now blanking on the title of with uh, Ravenwood or... Yeah, yeah, Ravenbird or something like that. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I love that show. I thought Adrian Paul was a fantastic Duncan McLeod. Great show. Love that show. So good. Well, I that too. I watched three years of episodes in one week to be able to do my 13 plot thumbnails. And I would sit there like in a coma going, here we are. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. For many, many hours. Oh, so awesome. So um, before Teen Wolf or before writing On Fire, how many episodes of Teen Wolf had you seen? Well, I had seen, oh, before writing it. Um, yeah. By the time I wrote it, the whole first season had either been aired or I knew, I think it had been aired. I think the whole first season, pretty sure. Because my dilemma was that when I talked to the show, um, first it was funny because they had me had a conference call and I figured out, they told me it made a list of all the people who were gonna talk to me. And so I looked up everybody and got, okay. And then they all called and go, hi Nancy, hi Nancy, hi Nancy. And I couldn't tell who was who. I'm like, oh crap, all that work I did. Like, thank God I can see you guys. And so, <laughs> um, so I was saying, I said, the problem that you have here is that you had a big mystery and you have a reveal and I can't go there. And I don't remember if the show had run yet and you knew who the alpha was or if it was going to be, it would happen before the book came out. But in either way, it couldn't have anything to do with, and the alpha is, you know, you couldn't do that. And so I said, we have to do a sideways story, a story that doesn't affect the overall plot. So what to do? And they all felt kind of silent. And then somebody said, are you going to come to LA anytime soon? Because they used to live in San Diego. And so I said, actually, I am, because another book of mine was being recorded for audiobook, and I was going to go observe it. It was at the Warner Center, which is part of this whole conglomeration of Hollywood stuff. Will probably knows where it is. I do. And um, so, so I said, well, yes, I will be in L.A. So I went to Jeff's office, and I think it was his office because it was in a, a beautiful condo complex. It was gorgeous. And I wanted to say, do you live here? But <laughs> it had to be cool. And um, I had been very distracted when I got out of my car and I walked up and, and, and knocked on the door or whatever I did. And his assistant let me in and I realized I left my notebook in the car. I'm like, oh my God. I said, I'm so sorry. And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. Just go get some printer paper for her. So, <laughs> so I'm writing a printer paper like, oh, I'm already making a bad impression, I'm sure. But what he said was, I've been trying to think of this problem that you posed. And he said, what about if they have some kind of a reunion? Like if werewolves have a family reunion. And so all the, all the family, the Hale family comes back and they come back to Beacon Hills and there's some reason for that. And I said, oh, okay. And I said, can I do backstory? And he said, yes, you can do backstory. And so he gave me a lot of leeway and I was really, really excited because it wasn't as nerve wracking as Highlander <laughs> ever been. Um, and I, you know, I had done Buffy and he liked Buffy. So we talked about Buffy. And then when he found out that I was a Highlander fan, there was another connection. And he was just a very giving, very friendly, very generous person. And, um, you know, I, I kind of 
is I'm sure Will could go through this too, that people talk about, they're cynical about Hollywood and they're cynical about film and TV production. And really people work super, super hard. And a lot of them are really, really nice people. And he's one of them. And uh, I was really lucky that I got to have the meeting with him because I truly wasn't, I, you know, you never know how much leeway you have. You never know how much freedom you have. And um, I had several times where I thought of something in Buffy and they go, no, no, no we're going to do that. You can't do that. Oh, okay. And so, um, so when I got to do all the things I got to do in that novel, I was really excited. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, we've definitely heard across the board that everyone who's worked with Jeff just says how great it was working with him. We haven't heard any bad things about oh, him he, so far. He, I'm sorry to get a little choked up because he was so nice. He was such oh. a cool guy. And I'm sorry, my path is not crossed with him again. I think they should have criminal minds novels. I don't know why they don't. <laughs> I mean, three Hold on. at least a hundred of them. There's right. 325 episodes. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. Um, as we've talked about, you wrote a lot of books in the Buffyverse, of mm -hmm. which I own many, but <laughs> but do you find it's easier to write for something like Buffy, um, where the characters, I, I can't remember exactly whenever you came in, but where the show is ongoing and has a lot of established canon or something like Teen Wolf, where you were jumping in pretty early when it only had like the one season aired? Well, I'll tell you that um, my co-author, Christopher Golden, and I wrote the very first original Buffy novel that came out. Um, Buffy had not yet aired. I knew what it was. And I was recommended and talked to an editor who um, had been bidding for the rights but didn't get them. And so I um, went to a friend of mine. I said, hey, I'm going to pitch for this show. You want to do it together? And we found out who the editor was. We pitched her on a Thursday. I think Friday we got our green light and we started working. We had three and a half weeks to write this book. I'm not oh, sure wow. it's the first book that came out that was an original, but it was the first one written. And we wrote it from scripts that had not yet been aired. Oh, and wow. so they FedExed them. I felt so Hollywood in San Diego. I'd get up, <laughs> oh, it's Tuesday. And I would go on my porch and there'd be a FedEx script of Buffy. And so I'd get my coffee like, oh, I'm so cool. And I'd read my Buffy <laughs> And uh, before we, um, when we got started, we had like six or seven scripts and we created a dictionary and we called it Buffy Speak. And we concentrated, of course, because we're smart, on the episodes Joss wrote. So we had all these funny, like, if you, especially if you watch the first like six episodes, the way they talk is so Valley Girls, like pause, negly, negly. And we did all of that, like really, really heavy and um, over time, we realized that they lightened up and so did we. There have even been books written by linguistics professors about Buffy's speak and Slayer language or whatever they want to call it that week. And so I really did jump in right away on Buffy. Um, and in Angel 2, I wrote a name, the very first Angel novel, City Of, which was a, the pilot. And there was, I had to write an entire novel and there's an episode isn't long enough for an entire novel. And so I wrote a novel guessing and they said, no, this is too far afield from what we're planning. My editor told me later, she says, this is one of the best novels, tie-in novels I've ever read and we can't publish it. So I had to rewrite it. <sighs> and so there's always these questions. So when I got into Team Wolf, I think I felt so welcomed by Jeff and I felt given some direction by him 
that I wasn't nervous because it had already gone down the road a couple of times of brand new shows. And um, on Angel, when I did the Angel book, I didn't even know what the actors were going to look like in the show. I had to, I, you know, I'd IMDb them and look at their publicity pictures to see who they were. And so luckily, because there was so much crossover from Buffy, I could, Mm. I knew who those guys were. And so, you know, but I didn't know what Doyle looked like, you know, who Mm. was this guy. And so over time, you know, um, you kind of learn what you do is you absorb as much as you can. I watched interviews. I found pictures of actors and you just glean, glean, glean. And then you kind of hope and then you go. So, so, but it was very, very exciting, especially since uh, I have been to Comic-Con and seen how absolutely crazy people were for Team Wolf. I was like, whoa, I'm in on something really cool here. (laughs) I felt really, really lucky. It's wonderful. Thank you. Um, so we we have talked about this a little bit already, but um, when we interviewed Jeff for this podcast, he also mentioned Buffy. Um, I don't remember exactly what the context was, but do you see some parallels between Buffy and Teen Wolf having written in both of those worlds? Absolutely. Um, Buffy is the Slayer. She didn't know she was going to be the Slayer. Um, she didn't pick being the Slayer. And she's in high school. And she's got all the high school angst and all the problems that high schoolers have. And so does Scott. Um, he gets bitten. And he's like, what? And <laughs> what happened to me? And, um, you know, he's in... in the, the plus is that he doesn't have to use it as an inhaler anymore. But... But he's a, a hero called to the quest without his permission. And, um, and his quest is very muddy at first. It's like he just wants to survive and get the hell out of there. He doesn't, he's not aiming to be an alpha. He's not aiming to have a pack. He's just trying to figure it out. Buffy is more like, you are the knight in shining armor, kiddo. You are the one. You are it. And so she has a more majestic arc but Scott is very much like her in that he has to keep it a secret and if it comes out it's like really bad and you know he's trying to protect his friends even at the beginning you know Buffy is a slayer and she's the first slayer to have friends and so she has to protect her friends Scott has to protect his friends and there's so much of that you know in the in the episodes where he's like I can't wolf out now or have to make sure they're safe. And, you know, he's so torn and he's got so many loose ends going along. And the same thing, his mom doesn't know and Joyce didn't know. And so their adults are like almost in another world at first. And so Giles is is a sort of unusual uh, mentor character in Buffy that Scott didn't have. Scott gets Derek, which... um, not bad eye candy there either. I'm having to say. <laughs> <laughs> ooh, ooh. But um, so, so, you know, having Superman on your side is not a bad idea. But he, so in many ways, there are a lot of parallels. In some ways, there are not. Um, Scott does not get called to save the world at first. He gets called to save his family and his loved ones, but not the world. And over time, that does change. Um, also, um, what I loved was the 
increase in mythological characters as time went on. You know, you thought vampires, well, no, it's demons. There's lots of demons, different kinds. And then in Scott's world that all the different mythological creatures come along and you're like, what, how did that happen? But there's somebody, everybody, well, I'm not just a math whiz, I'm a banshee, okay. And so, <laughs> but it keeps it really fresh and interesting and it gives him more puzzles, more, you know, if it's always werewolves, 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 it's like Scooby-Doo. Um, I had a friend whose son, when he was little, he's like six, he loves Scooby-Doo. And the dad, who was a writer, he said, why do you like Scooby-Doo so much? It's always a guy in a suit. He goes, but dad, every week, it's a different guy in a different suit. And <laughs> it's not like that with these with these shows. They're much deeper than that. And they they keep, keep you like, huh, how would I do that? And they keep you engaged and pull you in. And so both shows are like that. So I think there are a lot of parallels between Buffy and Teen Wolf, but I will say, Jeff created his own thing. It's not like Buffy Light or Buffy 2.0 or Buffy Reboot. It is Team Wolf by Jeff and it's his thing. And um, and that's why I liked working on it because it wasn't just, well, there's a, guy, there's a girl, but he's a guy this time <laughs> who's gonna save the world, and, but he lives in Beacon Hills, not in Sundale, you know? And so it's, it's new and I loved it because it was new. And it was different and it was unusual. So in that way, they are different. Well, it's funny. I, I just, I don't know where to drop this in, but I used to have a rewatch and I would do, um, I would announce the episode. And then what I would do to make people watch, um, it was on Twitter and I would go 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, go. And then everybody would watch it together. That was the only way I could figure out how to do it. But what I would do was I would, I was going to Los Angeles a lot. So I'd stop at Disneyland and I'd buy keychains and they would either say the name of the character or the actor like Tyler or Derek. Oh. And I would give them away and I would ask questions during the rewatch, like um, what's Scott's lacrosse number or what color are uh, uh, Derek's eyes or what did Kate say um, five minutes in? And I would send them out as prizes. And I did nice. it for a long time and it was really fun. And, and um, a couple years ago now, I'm so pandemically challenged. I don't know when time is. Aren't we all <laughs> this <point? Yeah. laughs> I got invited to appear in two comic cons in Australia and the two Tylers were there. Nice. And so um, they, of course, they didn't know I had written a book about them. They, um, some Tyler Posey and Holland and um, Colton opened up the New York Stock Exchange while they were on the show. And they had copies of On Fire in their picture, like when they like, went. Uh, That's awesome. But, you know, they do so many things and they go so much. I wasn't sure he would remember. So um, I was in the green room at the one of the two Australian comic book conferences or conventions. And uh, they had this weird fancy coffee maker that would make all cappuccinos and all these things. And I just stood there like this and Tyler Posey goes, it's really complicated. I'll do it for you. I'm like, thank you, thank you. <laughs> and then, uh, Tyler um, Hecklin was more, was sitting around just kind of eating. And I said, how you doing? And he said, I'm fine. And I was always sort of weird because I'm not an actor. So people don't recognize me. And so they're like, who the hell are you? Um, <laughs> and so he was eating and sitting. I said, you know, I wrote a book about you. And I said, I wrote a Teen Wolf novel. And he said, oh, 
really? And I said, yeah. And so I had met his baseball coach just in by happenstance at a thing called the Maker Fair in San Francisco. And I just mentioned him and she said, oh, I used to be his one of his coaches when he played baseball. So um, so I said, I met your coach and la, la, la. And we were talking and um, I said, do you go to a lot of things like this? And he goes, well, I do right now because I just bought a house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he was really, really friendly and nice. And then we saw him in the hotel later. We were in the elevator. He came in there. I'm like, do I say hi? I mean, I'm like, hi, how are you? And I thought, I, I'm trying not to fangirl you, but he's so handsome. Um, and handsome. That was yeah. the only time I saw Tyler Posey all weekend. I saw Tyler H much more than I saw Tyler Posey. Tyler Posey's just the sweetest. Oh, he he's delightful. On Fire is a very fast-paced and fun read, and it feels completely within the world of Teen Wolf. Um, what was it like stepping into the world of a brand new show with Teen Wolf? Because it was so early in the in the life of the show that you were kind of getting in on the ground floor when it come when it came to building mythology and 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 testing the waters with these characters. Well, you know, it's funny because I reread the book before I got on today because I couldn't remember it. And I thought, what did I, what happened in that book? So I read it and I turned to my husband, I go, you know, this is pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Who wrote this? Um, But, but what I liked about when I wrote it or when I, when I was rereading it was the fast pace. And um, I think sometimes I have a tendency to over explain things and not trust the reader. And I didn't in this one. I just went for it. You know, the forest was on fire. Ashes were coming down. And like, okay, I didn't like the forest, which was deciduous. Um, You know, I really did have a good pace. And I do remember what I did was I downloaded all the music I could find of that had been on the show. And I wrote to the music and I kept it loud and I kept it pounding. And it was good. Somebody said, the music on Team Wolf is Euro trash. And I'm like, hey, oh my God. Yeah, they said it's Euro trash. And I thought, no, it fits with that kabuki thing I was talking about. And it was just awesome. So I'd get up every single morning. And what I used to do is I used to have a big desktop and I would it I would turn it on, snap on the go vroom, like that. And I go, engage number one. And then I would drink my coffee and listen to my Team Wolf soundtrack and kind of get into it. And I'd go like this, I'd physically go, okay. And then I get started. And I think I just never paused. I just kept working and I didn't mull. And I'm a terrible overthinker, muller. Well, what would that mean? You know, I didn't do that. I just went for it. And I think that that's why the pace was fast. And I also kept watching and rewatching the episodes over and over and over and trying to keep track of how fast they were. And um just as an aside, I, I did something where I was using, I was watching the movie Scream by Kevin Williamson. And every 15 minutes, if you watch that movie, it's almost exact. Every 15 minutes, a major plot point occurs. And I'd sit there like, yep. And so on Team Wolf, it's the same thing. It was like, boom, boom, boom. This happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. And I'm like, okay, okay, I got it, I got it. And I'd go, okay. And I'd start writing. So that was how I, I jumped in. I just jumped in. I didn't try. I tried not to give myself the out of 
being the angsty author sitting in her room thinking, you know, I had to work and, and it was fun because it was such a cool show. So you wanted to be there and you wanted to find out what was going to happen next. As a writer, you look me, me, so. <laughs> yeah, I definitely love the pace of the book. It's fantastic. Um, and I love all the backstory. It absolutely broke my heart whenever uh, young Derek encounters Styles and his family. Did you have any other ideas for like prequel stories involving like the Hales, the Argents, or Stalinskys, or anyone else? Oh God, you, everybody, all the writers I know do. And um, I I would have loved to have like the Team Wolf family album. You know, I give it to me, I'll do the, I'll do anything, but it did not happen. And um, so when you're doing something like this, um, I, I kept track of what I had decided, but you, not everything that's on the page, if I allude to something, I'm, I'm not always sure what I meant, like in the sense of, um, I know you're going to ask me because Kate is mad about some guy. She's pissed mm -hmm. off. I didn't even think about it. I just thought she's the kind of woman who would be pissed off by some guy. She's just, you know, Kate. So she would have some bitterness. She would have some rage over something because, well, I guess in this way, I did do backstory because I thought why is she such a <laughs> I H and why is she so awful she's it's awful. Kind of from Buffy. like when she does a cattle prod she's like <laughs> you know I mean the Argents were like it's the code of the hills we gotta kill them if they try to kill us and she's like hell no I'm just torturing him I'm enjoying torturing him and she was not she was icky and um so, and that, <laughs> you know, stuff. So that's what made me think, okay, she's got some backstory, not maybe just with werewolves, but with male werewolves. And, and that was something was going on with her besides that. So while I didn't go, okay, and that will be, you know, I didn't have a decision tree like Lydia's decision tree. I didn't say that, but I did think, well, I'll give her this. I will give her this kind of problem. I thought the decision tree was such a great detail and I definitely didn't expect that, but yeah, it was fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. It was very hard to type it in. You know, I typed it in. But, yeah. um, do you think that Derek knew that that was Styles? Uh, like as an adult, do you think once he met Styles, he knew that was him? And how do you think that would, if he did, I how think, would it affect his relationship? With I, I think... I think he did not, or I would have had him think about it in, in a scene or say something to him, you know, when you were a kid. I think that part of it was almost like, uh, you know, when you, I might, you, you and I might, well, like you said, you were at Comic-Con. I'm like, dang, I didn't see you, but, but we were both there. And I might have passed you and you, and I might have gone, oh, cute outfit or whatever, but I didn't know it was you. And so I think in that way, that was how I imagined it, that they had been like ships passing in the night and everybody's got their own thing and they just did not process. And I think also, I know I have um, the friends, uh, the daughters and sons of friends who are graduating from high school and stuff. And we were together in Girl Scouts and all these things. And they look so different now they're grown up. And I remember when they were these little six-year-olds, you know, singing about turtles and now they're you know oh I'm gonna major in biochemistry and I'm like oh. um and they don't look the same 
So I think that it, it makes sense to me that they wouldn't recognize each other. So to me, it was kind of ships passing in the night, almost like Easter eggs. Yeah, I That's really cool. loved the yeah the uh, stories how they like cross paths without actually yeah talking to one another. Well, I was nervous because I I was worried that this was Jeff territory and not Nancy territory. I was pretty anxious about, but I just sent it in like, okay, what do you think? Um, oh, oh, you liked it? Oh, good. <laughs> I hope this isn't stepping on your toes. So I can imagine that's a delicate line to walk there. Yes. What drew you to writing about the relationship between Derek and Kate? Because that is a relationship that's a pretty big um, part of On Fire. And there's a lot more detail in the book than really there ever is in the show. Right, right. Well, I was laughing too, because it was like, meanwhile, Allison and Scott smell smoke. (laughs) And this happens and this happens. Meanwhile, there's some more smoke. (laughs) I was chuckling like they're kind of like, okay, I'm going to use them. Just hold on. I got them over here like salt and pepper shakers. But, <laughs> but it was sort of like Derek and Kate, the unveiling. Um, and I think it was because I was always so, so um, taken with that whole cattle prod business and mm-hmm. the fire. It was just so huge and so awful. And um what the heck was that about and how she was a maverick and I think that's what fascinated me about it and I think that's why I spent so much time on it in the book it's a lot of time in the book um but it was um I wanted to give you know if if you have a fight on a show you divide people up you know so Aragorn is over here and Legolas is over there and Gimli's over there. And then they're all doing their different fights and then they fight together. And so they, everybody had to have their own little stories for somebody to fight against. So we'll, um, Scott and Allison were stuck in the fire and he couldn't explain to her that I can't get past these bushes because a certain kind of wood is like anti-matter for me. And then um, Derek and Kate, I needed backstory because they couldn't really have an ongoing adventure because I would intrude on the, the continuity of the show. So I had to go backwards. And so that's why you go back into their past because I can't really go into their future or their present. And so uh, without just doing a retread of what's on the show. So in that way, the, 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 the parts were intended to fill out Um, more information about each set of characters and because I couldn't go forward with um, those two guys then I then I went backwards and the same thing with um, Jackson and Lydia and all that with him getting kidnapped Um, I wanted to give him some action I wanted him to have a presence Um, so I wanted to give him an adventure and I really liked Lydia anyway. Lydia is this sort of, uh, sort of Cordelia of, <laughs> of <emo. laughs> she, she's, she's a little cagier. And, well, I don't know if she's cagier, but yeah, she's cagier. So, um, so in that way, I wanted to give those, those sets of people some space in the book, some real estate and something to do. And so because I couldn't move Derek and Kate forward, I moved them backward. And that's why their backstory is, is so prominent. It's great backstory. It was a lot of 
not fun to read, but it was, uh, it was, it was compelling. Like, because you're definitely, you know, something from the show, but you don't get answers. And these are the answers, you know, that you're getting in this version of the story. And it was always compelling because honestly, there were times where it was like, oh, and Scott and Allison are doing, so I was like, oh, oh, come on, you're in the woods. I got it. You smell smoke. We have to get back to the other story. I'm ready to, I need to know. I have, I have so many questions I need answered. So it was uh, a lot of fun. Well, I also like, because in the show, especially in the first few episodes, Derek is so menacing and so <laughs> powerful. And you're like, dang, I'm not screwing with that guy. And um, then you see how vulnerable he was and, you know, how he, he was wounded. I mean, he loved her. Right. And so so the idea that he had, he had layers, as we say, he, he you know, he had stuff to deal with. And he had tragedy and he wasn't just like, mm, you know, he wasn't. <laughs> and I also loved writing Steric. I love Styles and Derek. I love them. And um, <laughs> <laughs> I think they should have an animated series called Steric. Oh my God. Yes, please. <laughs> oh, I would love it. So. I actually just told a fan that um, we were talking to on Instagram that I feel like every Steric fan needs to read On Fire. Well, yes. all, all Teamless fans should, but especially the Steric fans, because I feel yes. like there's so much there for them. Thank you. Thank you. Because <laughs> that was my intention. And I, I just love that pairing. Just And uh, he kind they kind of remind me, although they are their own thing, they kind of remind me of Xander and Angel or Xander and Spike. You know, would you not do that? You know, ooh, dead boy. And (laughs) you're cold. You're not wrong. (laughs) You know, that kind of snarky. But it was scarier snarky. And that made me love Styles even more. Because Derek would go like, I'm going to kill you. And he might. He really might. You know, we didn't really think Angel would, or Spike, maybe Spike. But it wouldn't really kill them. But Derek, at first, you think, he might really kill this guy. No, wait, would he really kill this guy? And <laughs> it was scary. So, um, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I just love all their scenes together. And I feel like you did such a great job writing Styles he, and how he doesn't back down whenever Derek is um, threatening him. He just keeps on going. And I feel like I that's know. so true to the show. He's like, and I can see him going like, I should shut up. I'm not shutting up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we, we've discussed them on the podcast before as uh, unstoppable force meets immovable object, <laughs> right? Which is like... Where were you when I was writing this? <laughs> <laughs> right, that's exactly right. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and I also definitely wrote a little like post on Tumblr when I read the book that I was like, would you like to know what the book says about Derek and Styles? I don't care what your answer is. The answer is you're getting it. Uh, I'm going to describe it in excruciating detail. So I know you're thinking, well, if it's going to be this long, why don't I, why don't I just read the book? And yes, that's the point. Thank <laughs> but, you. Yes. We're a very pro Steric uh, podcast. Yeah. I am so Steric. So I know we talked about the amazing dynamic between Styles and Derek, but who is your favorite character to write in On Fire? And also just for my own uh, personal uh, knowledge, who's your favorite to write in the Buffyverse? Oh, um, well, I do think it had to be Styles. Although I I have noticed upon my reread that there's a lot of Derek in the book. Um, Scott, I have to be honest, to me, Scott is not as prominent 
um, he has a problem and he's, he's got Allison and all those things are really neat. I loved when they went to the cheesy motel that I, I liked it very much. Um, but I, but in, in real life, um, styles would be my favorite. And when I wrote Buffy, Xander was my favorite and Xander and Cordelia and, um, and Anya too, but that kind of snarky, you know, as Cordelia would say, uh, tact is just saying stuff that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> and so I love that snarky, smart aleck kind of quippy dialogue and that kind of comeback. And I like that De Xander was um, like Styles um, upfront about his shortcomings or his own perceptions of himself. I'm just, I just watch, I'm just the watcher. Um, I'm not that cool guy, but what, um, what Gail Berman, who was one of the people who brought Buffy to TV, uh, what she said, we will have more Buffy's when we have more Xander's. And Xander was a very uh, compliant, oh, second in command. You are my you are my leader, which is what Spike said to her. You are my leader. I will do what you say. This is what Buffy wants us to do. Let's go do it until season six or seven. And um, same with Styles in a way. He's like Scott. Well, what the heck? Okay, I'll go. I'll go. Um, I'm very into Sherlock Holmes right now, and he's Doctor Watson. Um, only he's a funny like a Jude Law Doctor Watson. Ah, yes. <laughs> I love that comparison. <laughs> What is the what is the process like writing a novel set in a pre-established world compared to a story that is completely your own that you're sitting that you're setting out to tell? Um, actually, a lot of people think that writing tie-in novels is somehow confining, and it's not because once you are in that universe, you can go so many different ways, and your publisher and usually the production company will go with you. So you could say, I want to write a funny teen wolf, or I want to write a creepy teen wolf, or I want to write a mystery, or I want to write an adventurous teen wolf. And they'll go, oh, okay, great. Um, because the, the show is the characters and the mythology, but then after that, then you can go all kinds of different ways. So with Buffy, we have funny Buffy stories and romantic Buffy stories, and you could go so many ways. Whereas, for example, when I wrote my Wicked books, they had to all be like each other. And so... Uh, you know, you, you see a lot of writers, like if you write the Hunger Games and then Mockingjay is a, is a comedy, then you go, wait a minute, that's not right. That's not the way this goes. And so you have this, the way this goes kind of problem. And when you write in somebody else's universe, you already have a fandom and the fandom will usually go with you as, as long as you don't make a mistake. Gotcha. And as long as you don't take the fan, the story somewhere, they wouldn't go. Gotcha. Um, you know, like when people would got mad when, when um, Tara died or like when Kennedy showed up, you know, the fandom got ripply. And so mm -hmm. if you write about things, for example, uh, when Buffy was ending, there was a, a, there was talk about bringing Angel back for some episodes and so I assumed Angel and Buffy were going to be the ones to get together. That it wasn't going to be Buffy and Spike. It was going to be Buffy and Angel. So I wrote a novel. And in the novel, which takes place around then, Buffy and Angel get together. And the Spike fandom was furious. And people wrote letters to 
uh, 20th Century Fox and said I should never be allowed to write another book. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> they created a, a secret website called The Sparklies. And they on the day that book came out, they put 91 star reviews up on Amazon. And it was a concerted oh effort to make the book fail because they wanted to send a message that oh they wanted to spike in Buffy books. So I said, please get the word out to these guys. The show is ending. And so the publishers and everybody are waiting to see if they will be able to have uh, enough people buy the books to make it worth it to keep publishing Buffy books. If you ruin a Buffy book right now, they just won't have any Buffy books and you will never get your Spike and Angel or Spike and Buffy book. And so they, they took the reviews down. But that's the kind of stuff you kind of have to, that's the icky part. And somebody warned me that I was going to go to this function at UC, uh, UCLA, a Buffy fest. And they said, somebody's going to come up to you and talk to you about Buffy and Angel and Buffy and Spike. And they have a tape recorder in their pocket and they're going to record you. So be careful what you say. And I actually, I should, I wish I had it in here, but I have a Spike t-shirt and I wore my Spike t-shirt to that event. <laughs> like, it was like my bulletproof vest or something. Your armor. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty nervous, but I wasn't super nervous. Yeah. You know? It's like when you travel out of the country and you put a Canadian flag on your back. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So yeah, um, this is an I'm actually, from a good North America. Right, I'm from a <laughs> good part. You've heard of me? Exactly, we're America's hat. <laughs> So, um, <laughs> but uh, this isn't in the doc, but I, it just popped in my head. When it comes to writing your own original stuff, are you a planner or a pantser? Super planner, super planner. Um, I plan it. I have two books that I read and reread. And one is called Save the Cat and one is called oh, Writer Turn. And I, um, I, um, I buy file cards and I, put out the beats just like you probably did when you were writing um, scripts. And I put out all the beats and I put the acts and I get it all straightened out. And then every morning I look at my card and then I get to work. And so so I am very much of a, pl a plotter, a pan not a pantser, I'm a plotter, I'm a planner. Now nice. when I write short stories, I'm not, then I just go for it. But that's cool. when I do that, I'm very, I plan a lot. That's really cool. Before I worked on Teen Wolf, I was uh, I just flew by the seat of my pants. I was like, I kind of have some idea. I know it's some plot points. I'm just gonna whatever happens. But then because of Teen Wolf, because like we're making a TV show and everyone's waiting that you have to have outlines, you have to have drafts like ready to go. So now I can't not do that anymore. Like I'm very much uh, I have to have my acts broken down right, and like right. my my plot journey and my emotional journey. I gotta know what's going on so I can exactly. know what's what's happening. That's me too, to a hundred percent, hundred percent. And I have friends who go, oh, I don't do that. I just find my way. And like three years later, they're working on the same thing. I'm like, still finding my way, you know. <laughs> okay, enjoy that life, you know. <laughs> I just get up and I go, okay, what? And if I get stuck, I write out what is the goal of this section? Why am I doing this? And um, one of the advantages of Teen Wolf and Buffy was because everybody loved all the characters. I shifted points of view. And sometimes if you don't have a good reason to shift a point of view, people are like, well, why am I reading about this guy now? But in those, in, that's another reason why it's so much fun to write in somebody else's universe is you get to, you get to experience all the, all the characters who are so loved. That's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. Hey. 
Were there ever any shows that you are a fan of that you would have liked to have done a tie-in for but didn't get a chance? Um, Joan of Arcadia. I would have loved to do Joan of Arcadia. I think it was called American Dreams or something. I can't oh, yeah. I wrote two books on a show called Saving Grace uh, starring Holly Hunter. Mm-hmm. I really, really loved that show. I loved that show so much. Um, I thought the ending was just a mess. I was very upset with the last episode and it was canceled quick. It was canceled, I think, in the third season, partly because they weren't making enough money in DVD sales and foreign sales. And so they just decided the the network wanted to continue. To, they, they asked to renew for another year and the production company said no, which is kind of weird. Yeah. Um, and Holly Hunter was in it and it, it played, she's, this way out of control cop in um, uh, Oklahoma. And uh, she thinks that she's murdered somebody in a drunken hit and run. She goes, oh God, please save me. And that is when her guardian angel Earl shows up. Earl shows up, yeah. And I wrote two Saving Grace books and I just loved that show. And I would have liked to write more Saving Grace. Very cool. Yeah. So how did writing for uh, Teen Wolf compare to writing for Buffy and Angel? You said you got a chance to actually go to set for Buffy and Angel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think aggregate, I was thinking about it one day. I think I spent about a month on set up there. Um, well, part of the reason for that was that I wrote the episode guidebooks. And when um, Buffy came on the air, they did not have a show Bible. They didn't have anything written down and they used our books, our episode guidebooks as their show books, their Bibles. So that was really cool. But um, we went up there and we, my co-author Chris Golden and I went up there and we got to walk on the sets and we tried to Joss and it was all very heady and very fun. And I got to go to the Christmas party. Um, I got a big bag of goodies, like a, a really cool leather satchel that's a Buffy the Vampire Slayer and I have a crew t-shirt and I had little little tchotchkes and a lunchbox and they were really 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 nice to me and um I at first when I get up there I had a liaison and um her name was Caroline and Caroline I would say I would like to talk to um James Marsters and she'd go okay hold on and then she'd go and she'd say okay James can see you at 10 o'clock like okay and it was very formal and the you know, charisma can do uh, okay. And then after a couple of days, I said, you know what? Just go up to anybody you want. <laughs> <laughs> that was in the first, the first of these books was the first two seasons. And it was still kind of a cult hit, as they say, which is a way of saying, we didn't think it'd be this popular. <laughs> <laughs> and I would talk to people on the show and they would say, my agent didn't want me to do this. Um, he thought I was crazy. I could have been on... And CIS or whatever, and I picked Buffy, and they and they were really mad at me because it's such a wacky, bizarre thing, and it's not going to last. And so, you know, they were like loving that we loved them and that we were promoting them, and it was like the little show that could. And then it became Buffy, and then it was like more formal again. But by then, I'd been there so much that people knew who I was. They often didn't know what I did, but I stayed <laughs> here long enough where I can have lunch with you, but you don't ask me to do anything because I'm not part of the crew. I'm not part of the cast. I'm just here. 
but you know me. You go, oh, hi, how you doing? And you might think, now what was her name? But but I was there enough where I wasn't an anomaly anymore. And um, the second episode guidebook that I had proposed the idea was we took a whole episode from the pre-production, the beginning, and we went all the way through broadcast. And how do you do that? Um, I have to say that we didn't get the coolest episode. We got the I and team, but um, you know, we could have had something really juicy. I wanted hush, but we didn't get hush. So um, yeah, but, but they have this big room where they had these, these um, folding tables and all the department heads sat at the tables with the script and they go, okay. And they turn the page. And then for example, um, I was there one day when the costume, the head of costuming said, Sarah wants another change of clothing. And they all stopped. And somebody said, well, why would she change her clothes? And she said, Sarah wants a change of clothing. I was definitely still visiting, but I was a welcome visitor. And I wish that there had been some reason to go on set for Team Wolf. I really do. Um, but it was fun just to meet Jeff. And it was fun later to meet the boys. The boys. <laughs> but, you know, not they're not that old. But, um, you know, it, it, there was no reason. And it happened fast. It was over. And, and that made me really sad. I would have loved to continue writing in Team Wolf. It's such clever writing. And this total, as we said, that total hysteric thing was hysterical and really fun to write. So. We would have loved to have had it would have more been, Team Wolf books yeah. from you. Yeah. It would have been wonderful. So just this other <laughs> this other set of adventures, yeah. you know, that it's, yeah. it's like the, the other adventures and- um, The side yeah. notes, the, the side right. notes of Beacon Hills. Yeah, exactly, yeah. that would have been fun. That would have been a lot of fun. So. I know. Well, I think it's great that you guys are perpetuating it. It's wonderful. Yes, ma'am. No, There's we... still so many new fans out there because it's now on Hulu and it's gone yeah. to like Amazon. So new people are finding it every day. And yeah. I think people see see Tyler as Superman and then they move over like, oh, what else? Right? Oh, mm -hmm. what is this? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, if Superman had never been created, I don't know <laughs> what would happen. I'm like, He's in another Superman thing. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah, we're we're also I watching. I would have watched right The Witcher. What? I'm sorry. What? <laughs> what oh, dude, we're, we're also watching uh, Superman and Lois right now. Oh, yeah. excellent, excellent. Yeah. Love it's really very good. good. It's very good. All right. Well, we are barreling right into the end here, Kate. You want to okay. do this question? Yeah. Um, have you ever had any interesting interactions with Teen Wolf fans? Well, I did have my, when I had my uh, rewatch on Twitter, um, I got to know some of the people pretty well. It was kind of funny because <laughs> I have these contests and some of the same people kept winning. I'm like, I didn't think of that. You know, <laughs> you only won three times or what, you know, there was a pretty good group. It wasn't like only six people watched, but some people know Teen Wolf or they wouldn't, they would guess like, I don't know if you ever watch because me being a Disney freak, um, I watch these Disney blogs, vlogs, and there's one guy that he'll have a hidden Mickey. And I go, if you saw it, and he's Australian, he goes, if you saw that hidden Mickey, tell me what time you saw it. No, you put you in for the prize. <laughs> and so, so I, on the Team Wolf rewatch, I'd say, what did Kate say at 7.12? And somebody would have gone, I knew she was going to ask that, and they win. So... <laughs> So that was kind of weird, but I got to know some of the people pretty well. 
And um, so through various fandoms, you guys probably do the same thing. You, you make friends with people who are fellow fans, and then you have a new fandom, or you keep your friendship going, after, even though maybe your interest in the show or whatever may have lessened, you're still friends with that person. And so some of the Team Wolf fans and I are still friends. And so that is cool. And then when I, like, I, there was a really nice review in French of the novel recently, and somebody tweeted about it on, on Twitter and um, in French. And I'm like, ah, zoot, go wolfies. And they're like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> so that is cool. That is really cool when it's lasted so long. Mm -hmm. And that makes me so happy. So, so that in that way, I have had interactions with fans. Really cool. I wish I had known about wonderful. that at the time. I was on Twitter, I think, whenever yeah, you were doing the rewatches, but that would have been really fun. Really fun. And I and it was so fun because I'd go up to Disneyland and I'd like I love to shop and so I like to spend money. And so I'd go like, oh keychains, here's some keychains. You know, I had to decide because at first it was going to be coffee cups, but then I thought, wait, I have to send these things through the mail. And some people were in foreign countries. Um I I had a contest once for a book. And um, somebody like in Iraq won the book and it cost $80 to send it. Oh, and wow. I didn't get the book. And I'm like, oh, heck. So I sent another one. It's like $160. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So when you make a contest, think about these things. But Gotta think so about these things. And it was little and it didn't weigh that much. Right. It was really fun. That was awesome. good time. Awesome. Are there any upcoming projects you can tell us about? Oh, well, let's see. Um, I, um, I'm very proud of this. It's very weird. And I don't know if it'll be backwards on your screen because I can't ever remember if I did that or not. But this is a weird book. It's called Sherlock Holmes of Baking Street. And it's not <laughs> a cookbook. Um, what it is, is, and you can see it's kind of horrific cover. Oh, that's Sorry. awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is an Australian comic book illustrator and a graphic novel artist named Jan Sherpenhuizen. And what it is was um, I'm a Sherlock Holmes person and my editor and I, she came up with the idea because everybody was baking during the pandemic. They were crazy baking. And so somebody said, well, isn't that funny that Sherlock Holmes doesn't live on Baking Street? And she said, well, you know, that could be a springboard. So we took the idea of baking as a metaphor. So some people baked, I don't know if you know who Sweeney Todd was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. baked, made, somebody wrote a, a, a mystery about baking people in pies. Somebody else, there's a, a line in Sherlock Holmes that said Baker Street was like an oven. And so they took that. Or there's a couple stories about uh, mysterious fires or a kitchen fire or some kind of a poison or something hidden in a baked good. And then there's straight articles. There's articles about how did people in the Victorian times know how hot their ovens were? Who knew? Or, um, you know, it, they cooked sugar. Sugar has a certain temperature. And when the sugar would cook, they go, okay, it's hot enough. Oh, I didn't know that. So it was all, it's all this kind of weird stuff. And I wrote um, our essay based on the movie, Mr. Holmes, written by a man named Jeffrey Hatcher. Um, and I met him and I interviewed him because when I watched that movie, for some reason, Sherlock Holmes became a real person to me. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, in fandom, you, you kind of, you ha some people have this weird kind of liminal sense, like Buffy is my best friend now. And some people are, I'm just watching a show and I like this show and I like Sarah Michelle Gellar and she's very pretty. But for some people, Buffy becomes very real. And so that's what happened with Sherlock Holmes. All of a sudden he was a real person. And I thought, well, how did that happen? And what it was, was a combination of things, but it had to do with having lived in Japan and eating Japanese baked goods. And so that was my baking street. So I know it sounds wacko, but it's, and it's not, we keep going, it's not a cookbook. <laughs> so Sherlock Holmes on Baking Street. And I just received a Bram Stoker Award. And now it's probably fallen off of the pile. Where'd it go? Here it is. Um, this is called Mary Shelley Presents. I don't know if you can see awesome. it. Awesome. Yeah. And this is the hardback graphic novel, but there's a paperback of it. And then there are individual comics. But what my um, editor and I did was we took stories written by women during the Victorian Edwardian time periods where the, the idea was that Mary Shelley, when she wrote Frankenstein, that has immortalized her. She's famous forever. People go, Frankenstein, Mary Shelley, oh! But there's other women were just as popular, if not more so than Mary Shelley or Charles Dickens or any, you know, Bram Stoker, but their work has been forgotten. So we use the idea that Mary Shelley and the creature being immortal, unearth these stories and dust them off and retell them and so we retell them in uh, comic book form. And then at the end of each story, I can get to it, we print the actual story. That's so awesome. Cool. That's so cool. That's yeah. very cool. Um, my publisher is Chimera, K-Y-M-E-R Press. And that's the easiest way to get it. I think it's on Amazon now. But, um, but I did just win an award for it. And I'm very, very happy. Um, we worked really hard on it. All the people who work on this, except for the... Uh, layout um or the the company designer are women and the woman who started this company started it with funding because she had a disease called popcorn lung from eating too much microwave popcorn while she was a tv writer in hollywood she wrote on touched by an angel dr quinn medicine woman lots and lots of shows and um, she uh, she wrote audiobooks for Dark Shadows. So she she had a lawsuit and she won and she took the money from that lawsuit and she founded Chimera Press. And she hired a bunch of women to do five or six different comic book lines. And um, they gathered the first four of mine into this hardback graphic novel, also in a paperback. And um, we actually debuted at Comic-Con and we usually have a booth at Comic-Con. So awesome. those are my two things. Those are so both cool. really cool. That's, I'm yeah. definitely checking both of those out. Me too. Yes, that's awesome. Thank you. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, Nancy, this has been an absolute pleasure talking well, to you about the one and only Teen Wolf novel. Uh, I know. Wait, here it is. Here it is. There's Scott. Here's Scott. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. I was so excited whenever you said you would talk to us because like I said, I, you know, I've had your book since Buffy. So I just thought it was really, really amazing yes. that we could well, get a chance you know, to sit down with you. It's weird because as life, as life goes on, you know, I, I, I started writing those in the late 90s. 
And it, to me, it's like that was yesterday. And I was even stunned at how much time has gone by since On Fire. I'm like, damn, I'm getting really old. <laughs> okay, well, my mom used to watch Buffy and I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> I'll always have digital. That's what, you know. Yeah, let's go. Very true. So I'm very glad to meet you guys and thank you. You're so smart and so fun and you had a wonderful time and I appreciate you asking me. It's been really wonderful getting a chance to talk to you and thank yes. you. Just thank thank you. you so much for sitting down with us and congratulations on your most recent award. Yes. Thank you. Such a cool project. That's very yeah. cool. Very thank cool. Thank you very much. Well, let's just say we should all, you know, focus your karma on a on more Teen Wolf, they could come back. Yes. They definitely could. They could. definitely could. Werewolves can age. Werewolves can age. And, um, and more Teen Wolf books. Yes, okay. definitely. Absolutely. Yes. By me. Yes. yes, by you. Yes. The one and only. So yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Thank you guys. Thanks so much. Thank you. That concludes this week's episode of Return to Beacon Hills. We hope you had as much fun listening as we did talking about all things Teen Wolf. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH Podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. Join us here next week when we discuss Season 1, Episode 6, Heart Monitor, and have a fantastic talk with Alyssa Clark, writer and editor for Teen Wolf. Rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast goodness. Five-star reviews get a shout-out. And don't forget to find us on Patreon at RTBH Podcast. Have a great week, and we'll see you again soon on Return to Beacon Hills. Dude, it's Beacon Hills.